Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. 
To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that feels really regretful about buying those seven jeans in 2004. You'll find out why later. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. Guess what? I mean, you're, this isn't going to be a surprise to you. It's our last episode of 2020. The next time you hear me, it's going to be a new year. And I'm pretty excited about it. And I'm really excited about this episode. Today's guest is MP of UnGarbage Magazine, According to the official UnGarbage website, this magazine was created to actively seek and inspire new ways of living that free us from societal pressures, discrimination, and oppression from the systems we live in. So after hearing that, you can probably understand why I held on to this episode for a few weeks because I thought it was a great way to end this year and like get the wheels turning in your brain for all the cool stuff we're going to do and think about next year. I'm so excited for you to meet MP. Also in this episode, I chatted with Brandy of No Flight Back Vintage about all kinds of stuff from being a mom to the challenges of not undervaluing yourself as a maker to how Forever 21 changed the way we looked at clothes kind of forever. Well, we're undoing that now, but for a long time. This episode is so full of good vibes and so full of great things to think about. So I'm just so excited for you to be listening to this. <laughs> but first, as always, it's time to thank our newest Patreon supporters. First is Nikki Graver, aka Nikki Nectarines of Queens, New York. As you know, I have to stalk all of the patrons and Nikki is an amazing painter. Seriously, go check out her Instagram. She paints a lot of food and grocery shelves, which is strangely like one of my favorite art subjects. I think it goes along with my undying love of fake food. And I've always been obsessed with Wayne Tebow's paintings of desserts and foods. I don't know if Nikki takes commissions, but I'm already thinking about asking her to do some sort of birthday cake display painting for me. You know, like the display of cakes in a store. There's this huge bakery in Mexico City, it's in the central, that I'm obsessed with primarily because the second floor is a huge cake gallery of all of these just like over the top, amazing cakes that are like marvels of architecture. And I mean, they're like massive. Like I don't even know how you would get them from one place to another. They're like a story high, some of them, it seems like. 
And, you know, I have celiac disease, so I can't actually eat any of those cakes, but I drag everyone who goes to Mexico City with me to that bakery because in the personal guidebook of Amanda McCarty, it's a key and important landmark. <laughs> I could spend hours in there. I love that place. I'll have to look for some photos to share on Instagram. So yeah, I think I might need a cake painting. I'm really talking myself into this right now. Anyway, you should go check out Nikki's work. She's Nikki Nectarines. And thank you for your support, Nikki. Next is Amber Ibarra, the woman behind Paso Collection. She has some of the most beautiful vintage clothing I've ever seen available for sale on her website. So do yourself a favor and take a stroll over to her Instagram at Paso underscore collection. So Amber sent me a message on Instagram that just tickled the hell out of me. And yes, I said tickled. She said, I have to tell you, for the last two months, I was, I was subscribed to the wrong clothes horse on Patreon. I was wondering why I couldn't get the Victoria's Secret special episode and like why the aesthetic was so different. She did a Q&A video and that's when I realized I had effed up big time. Amber also sent me the photos of this very different aesthetic and yeah, wow, like a very different vibe from clothes horse, but you know, super cute. So just as a reminder, the Patreon URL is patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. And if you ever run into issues with Patreon, message me because it's a really weird and confusing interface. It's drives me crazy. I usually, if I have a question about Patreon, I have to Google it and find the answer somewhere else. Kind of, ugh. anyway, that's not what this is about. Thank you so much, Amber, for supporting Close Horse and the other Close Horse and me. <laughs> I also just want to shout out Annery Sanchez for bumping up a tier on her patronage. Thank you so much, Annery. If you want to support Close Horse, this Close Horse, and me via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. I'll also put that link in the show notes. And if you click on the link in our Instagram bio, it takes you to a link tree that will take you to our Patreon as well. I also just wanted to mention that if you don't want to receive the pins and stickers swag stuff, you can opt out of that while sort of checking out on Patreon. You might not know that. It will give you that option when you reach the address portion of the process. Just so you know, you don't have to accept that stuff from me. <laughs> but you also can. It's good either way. And as always, don't feel pressured to, you know, give me money. I'm just glad to have you here as a listener. You know, that's what makes this podcast have a purpose. And if you want to support Close Horse in a free, zero-cost way, once again, you don't even have to do this, you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's super impactful. But like I said, you don't have to do that either. Just keep listening. So early this week, when I was talking to Brandy of No Flight Back Vintage, we started talking about, you know, the process of making an episode of Close Horse. And she was like, whoa, it's so much stuff. And I realized that most people probably don't know what goes into making a podcast because I didn't know what went into making a podcast until I started doing it. I think I thought it was going to be a lot more low-key than it actually is. I've also had people reach out to me to ask me how to make a podcast, and I'm always like, oh, 
it's so complicated. I can't like get my thoughts together right now. I realize that's a terrible answer, right? <laughs> so this week in stories, I shared the breakdown of the process and I thought I would share it here for all of you who might not be as caught up in Instagram as I am. It all starts with emails back and forth with prospective guests explaining the process, the time involved, answering their questions. Honestly, sometimes people reach out to me about being on the show and then they hear how much time it evolves and they totally ghost me. And the first time it happened, it kind of hurt my feelings, but now I'm used to it. And I'm just like, yeah, it's a lot, right? It's not as simple as you think it's going to be. Next, should that guest have been brave enough to choose to move forward with me? <laughs> the guest and I will spend some time building an outline of the conversation. And we do that together. This helps us stay on track, remember all the stuff we want to cover, and it gives me a roadmap for the research I need to do. It also gives the guest an opportunity to ensure that we talk about everything that's important to them. This conversation to make this outline can take anywhere from one hour to four hours. Just I never know when I set up the calendar invite how long it's going to go. After we figured all that out, I send a microphone to each guest to use. This is why Close Horse sounds pretty polished. Well, it's one of the reasons. So to mitigate waste and carbon footprint, I usually keep at least one microphone in circulation on the West Coast and a couple moving around the East Coast. The USPS issues have really messed up my December recording calendar. So while I'm waiting for the microphones to get to the guests, I'll do the research for the, like, the conversation part of the episode, and this takes one to two hours, sometimes longer, just kind of depends on the subject and how easy it is for me to find the information. Then the guest and I record using a service called Zencaster, and it drops the audio files right in my Google Drive, so it's very convenient, although sometimes this process is very glitchy, and some guests will tell you we've had con connectivity issues in the past. The recording usually takes at least two hours, but sometimes four or five hours, kind of depending on the guest. After we record, I send the guest a shipping label to send the microphone off to the next guest. So there's a lot of like strategy involving geography and the guest's personal schedules that I have to kind of like merge together to create a recording calendar. That's why it's such a bummer when like what happened in December happens where it's just all over the place. But it's working itself out for January, I can tell. Now next, I get down to editing. And this, if you didn't think there was a lot of work involved so far, this is like where the bulk of the work on the episode is, honestly. I use a program called Reaper. Dustin actually taught me how to use it. And it allows me to cut and paste the conversation back together. I'm really into editing out anything that can't be fact-checked. Um, excess ums, you know, stammering, repeated things, that kind of stuff. Sometimes I'm even like, oh, we digressed, we went, we moved forward in the outline, then we moved back. And so I have to like cut all that stuff and kind of move it all back together. It's a craft project, you know? And I also just like want every guest to shine because every guest we've had on the show so far, and I'm sure always, has been super smart, super passionate, just super amazing to talk to. And I want all of you to feel the same way when you hear the conversation with them. So I work really hard to dial that in. As a general rule, 30 minutes of audio, so 30 minutes of that two to four hour conversation that I recorded with them will take about two hours to edit. So a 
very standard two-hour episode, which we lately, we've been going beyond two hours. I'm trying to rein that in. We're looking at eight hours of editing right there. After I've done all that, I edit in any hotline calls or other conversations that I've had that week. And then I research and write the script for any of the solo dialogue, you know, like what you hear me doing right now. In a regular episode that is like 60% interview, the script is about 11 pages long. It takes two to three hours to put that together. So I'm just like writing, researching, that kind of stuff. When it's a mini-sode, this is the thing about the mini-sode. I don't have all the time suck, I guess, of like writing the outline with the guest and all the recording of the conversation, but I do have lots and lots of research and I have to write a much longer script that's just me. On average, it's about 25 pages long, totally single spaced. (laughs) So actually in a weird way, the mini-sodes take more time than the full length episodes or what I, I don't even know why I'm calling the mini-sodes, not mini-sodes. I'm, who cares, right? You don't care about that. Anyway, for the mini-sode 25-page situation, I mean, that's like writing a paper for school. That takes me an entire day usually to write the script. Next, I record and edit all of my solo dialogue, and that usually takes two to four hours, kind of depending on how articulate I am that day. I try to record that stuff in the morning. Um, something that I, some of you know, maybe because you know me in real life or we've talked offline about it, I have some speech issues, which in general you might not notice if you hang out with me because I think my brain has gotten really good at picking out words that fit together easily for me. But sometimes my brain, when I'm writing these scripts, writes a series of words that my mouth just cannot say. And so... In those situations, I have to take a lot of breaks and rewrite things around what my mouth is willing to do. (laughs) That sounds really perverted, but I think you know what I mean. (laughs) Anyway, after I record all that, I save it all down and I give it to Dustin to mix and render. That's why it sounds so polished and so professional. It takes about an hour for him to do that. I mean, I'm so lucky to have a partner who is so supportive and really like makes me elevate my game from an audio perspective. You know, he's definitely made me re-record entire episodes or at least very long monologues. And it's, I've been angry sort of, but then later just so happy that someone's pushing me in that way. After he does that, I have to listen to the entire episode to like find any issues or things I want to change. That can take hours. At the very least, the length of that episode. So the longer the episode is, the longer it takes me to listen to it. And then I might find changes that I need to make. Sometimes I can make them myself. Sometimes I have to get Dustin involved. And it just depends like the nature of them, the kind of file I'm working with, that kind of stuff. When I'm finally happy with the final mix, I upload it to our hosting server, which is something called Transistor. That's the other thing. You might think that podcasts are just getting uploaded to Spotify or Apple, but That's not at all true. It's like I host them somewhere else and there's like a feed that pushes it through. Um, Then I write the show notes. Then I open Squarespace to create the page for that episode where I kind of transfer all those show notes over. So yeah, each episode takes 15 to 20 hours to create, sometimes much longer depending on the interview and you know, how I need to edit it or other challenges I might face tracking down info. We've had a couple... just technological disasters where an entire file disappeared. 
my computer just shut itself down. I was almost done editing a two-hour episode. It was very, very upsetting. So I've had some setbacks like that too. But I suppose that's the nature of doing this. And when you listen to like a bigger podcast that has like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of subscribers, they're paying someone to do all that stuff. When maybe someday I'll get to do that. Although I actually really love editing. It's a really nice way for me to, I don't know, like really understand and hear the episode. Um, what else do I do? Like, you know, I spend a couple hours every day responding to messages and correspondence. I design all of the Instagram posts and I write all those epic captions. <laughs> oh, and I also research, record, and edit an episode of the department every week. <laughs> I mean, this is what I do right now, and it it's a lot of work, but I I love it. You know, I'm so grateful for all of my guests who volunteer their time, and as you can see, it's a decent amount of time, right? I'm so grateful for Dustin for helping me solve all kinds of audio problems over the past few months, for teaching me how to edit, for just making me do a better job, and I'm extra super grateful for all of you who call the hotline and write letters because that helps me sort of refine my focus for each episode. Because there's so much I could talk about, sometimes I get overwhelmed, you know? It's a lot of work, and sometimes I'm tired, sometimes I'm stressed out, sometimes I miss having fun, and sometimes I get super bummed when I realize that after all the expenses of making the podcast, like shipping microphones and hosting services and whatnot that I'm only making a dollar an hour. But like you said, it's also a labor of love that will hopefully turn into a quote, real job, maybe in 2021. I hope so, because my unemployment will run out then. And I'm so motivated by the response of all of you. It makes it all worth doing. So thank you for listening to Close Horse all this time, which has only been since July, but feels like a really long time ago. And thank you for taking it seriously and recommending it to your friends. And of course, when you can, supporting on Patreon. I'll tell you, <laughs> I do still have people in my life who think this is just like a wacky unemployment hobby. But I also have super supportive people in my life, like my mother-in-law, Cindy, who really thinks I'm onto something here. And all of you, it's so rad to hear from all of you. And for you also to take this all seriously and think I'm doing a good job. Amy of The Velvet Underground, the store, not the band, sent me a message saying, you're opening such a huge network of so many people globally who believe in what you do. And for us to finally be able to connect through your platform, we can all collectively make a huge impact through profitable businesses that don't suck. And I love hearing that because that's exactly what the future needs to be. And I believe it can be with all of us involved. I mean, hearing this kind of stuff makes me so excited about 2021, you know? This year was our chance to start changing things. You know, we needed some time to get our heads together, to kind of pinpoint our strategy. 2021 is when we're going to start making all that really happen. What can we do as a community? We can do so much. It's like limitless. And speaking of community, especially the community around Clothes Horse, Meg and I are hard at work on the official Clothes Horse blog. If you're interested in contributing, I've been talking about it on Instagram a lot, uh, send me an email or a DM and I'll fill you in on what's going on. 
We're hoping to have a Zoom call in mid-January or so for all the interested contributors so we can unveil the design, the process, our vision, etc. And we'll also need proofreaders, graphic designers, photographers, so please reach out if you want to pitch in. Do you hear that sound? It's the clothes horse hotline ringing. Okay, there's not actually a sound, and Dustin thinks I need to find a sound to use there. What do you think? (laughs) And what kind of phone would it be? I mean, there's so many phones out there. I just saw one on the Price is Right today that was like a gumball machine that also had a rotary phone built into it. It was pretty impressive, (laughs) actually. I wish I had that phone for the hotline. Anyway, (laughs) the phone rang, and it's Maggie of Salt Hats calling with a really important Beanie Babies story. Hi, Amanda. This is Maggie from Salt Hats. I hear you want to hear about Beanie Babies. Um, So here is not my story, but my husband Brian's story. Um, So back in 96, 97, when Beanie Babies blew up, he was... 18 years old and living in a one-bedroom apartment with three guys, one of which paid his rent in Beanie Babies. Um, He had a booth at the Gibraltar Trade Center, which is kind of like an indoor flea market um, that's not around anymore, but it was really big for many years. And he sold, in addition to Beanie Babies, um, collectible things like Pokemon cards, baseball cards, uh, bedazzled hats, um, and the type of person he was uh, is, I don't know if any of you remember, the Pokemon cards used to be sold in packages with, like, rare foil cards, like you could get randomly. He used to weigh the pack, find the foil cards, take them out, sell them individually, and then still sell the other packages without the foil cards to kids in the hopes that they would find one. So that's the type of person he was. Uh, Anyway, somehow or other, he had met some guy in Pennsylvania who had several Hallmark stores, and he was really irritated that um, he wasn't able to sell the rare Beanie Baby shipments for anything above retail value. So he would sell them to my husband's roommate for $8 instead of 5 So anyway, his roommate would drive down to Pennsylvania once a month to pick up a huge shipment of rare Beanie Babies. Uh, And he would run to U-Haul that had to be uh, returned within 24 hours. So he hired my husband to drive with him um, so that they wouldn't stop ever. And they would drive down and pick up, like, an insane amount of Beanie Babies. And then he would bring them back and sell them for $24. So that was uh, the ridiculous Beanie Baby story. But also, on one of the drives, uh, my husband Brian was asleep. um, And since they weren't allowed to stop, he had taken to peeing in drink bottles. (laughs) So while he was sleeping he kind of woke up a little bit and he heard uh, his roommate reach down and take his drink bottle and and took a big, long drink of Brian's pee. (laughs) 
which was a very satisfying end to uh, a story about the Beanie Baby Pokemon card scammer. So, yes, Jason, Brian knew that you drank his pee, even though you think he was asleep. Uh, so that's the end of my story. Now I guess Salt Hats is starting to be known for our very crass stories. But I hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Okay. I don't know how any of you will top that story. But if you have your own Beanie Babies story, please call the hotline. Also, being able to game the Pokemon card system by weighing the packs is like wild to me. I guess, you know, they say you learn something new every day. That's what I learned today. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for calling Maggie. The Bond sisters are like the source of the most iconic clothes horse stories. And they will definitely be on an episode in 2021. Don't worry. They're coming back. Okay. Use your imagination again because the hotline is ringing. And it's our new friend, Kyle who you might recall from two episodes ago. Hi, Amanda. Uh, it's Kyle again calling from New York. Uh, just listening to the newest episode of the podcast, heard uh, Katie's message, and I wanted to offer up as a um, response to that. I did not – like, I didn't want to disparage the suit. I am an avid wearer of tailoring. I am an avid uh, believer in anybody getting to wear whatever they want. And I do think that in a lot of ways, like, there are communities who have embraced tailoring in ways that are not only more uh, exciting, but more responsible in the ways that that um, a lot of the more traditional wearers of tailoring are. Tailoring are. Um, I wanted to bring attention to these people who are in communities that wear suits uh, and consider them all as consider them exclusively the territory and the purview of the gentleman, the people who would look down on, you know, those people that she mentioned, the black men coming in to purchase these hats and, you know, wear their suits with pride. They would, you know, there's a certain look in the men's work community called the Ivy League look, which some people call it trad, some Ivy uh, preppy, what, you know, there's a lot of different names for it. But in that community, they are famous. They are famous gatekeepers of the Ivy League look. And it makes them, they get all up in arms when they see, you know, a new ad of these, of people wearing the Ivy League look. Because it was worn by, you know, college students, uh, white male college students, particularly in the 50s and 60s in the post-war era. But, you know, if L.L. Bean, which is a very famous trad brand, puts out, you know, an ad that has a black man or a, a woman in their beloved Ivy League clothes, they lose their mind. They can't handle it. Um, and, you know, there there are these certain groups of people that, that take the gentleman aesthetic as something that is, you know, their God-given divine right to wear. Uh, and, you know, the those those moral uh the values like thrift and um you know maintaining your clothes and taking care of your clothes uh they those don't matter in so much as just having the aesthetic of the gentleman the superficial value of the gentleman uh as something you know 
divine and God-given. Uh, anyway, um, I just wanted to respond to that because I loved Katie's point. I think that that is so important, and I don't ever want like to say that um, you know there are there you know suits are bad because I love suits. I think they're great. I think they are some of the most flattering articles of clothing that anyone can wear. Everyone should wear them. Kyle also texted me because. You can also text the Clothes Horse Hotline, pro tip, to say that he'd been cut off. And his final thing that he didn't get to say that was cut off was, I love suits and hats. I hate people who gatekeep them. And I mean, I totally agree with Kyle. And I also feel like in this message, I learned so much that I didn't know. I'm really enjoying this dialogue about an area of style that's mostly unknown to me. So After listening to this message, I have even more questions, and I'm sure you do too, right? Because I have never heard any of the stuff he said in this message. The good news is that Kyle and I are going to do a longer phone call in the next few weeks, so I can ask all the questions that we have, and, you know, I'm going to share it all with you. Now, moving along, Brandy of No Flight Back Vintage is a Pegasus supporter of Close Horse. You might recall, if you listen to the blurbs in the beginning and you don't fast forward, that she makes dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. And her stuff is just so rad. Like, please go check her out on Instagram, at NoFlightBackVintage, after you're done listening to this episode. I mean, I guess you could pause now and do it. It's up to you. You know? Whatever. It's your life. Anyway, I've been taking time recently to kind of sit down and get to know all of the Pegasuses, the Pegasi, obviously over the phone, but hopefully someday, maybe next year, I'll get to meet them all in real life. I've been taking time to talk to everyone because I'm really into this cool community that we're building around here. And I just, everybody's had like the best stories. It's been so good to get to know everyone. Brandy and I had a chance to talk earlier this week. We actually talked for two hours. And then I was like, oh shit, I have to cook dinner and finish editing the department. So our conversation kind of has an abrupt end here because I just like had to go get back to work. And then I had the Herculean task of editing our very long, but super interesting conversation down to just 30 minutes. It was like quite a challenge. So please meet Brandy. Why don't you introduce yourself? So I'm Brandy of No Flight Back Vintage. Uh, yeah, that's that's me. I saw uh, all the dope uh, shit. Yeah, you make the dope ass shit. <laughs> <laughs> so aggressive. But I'm gonna do it. Why don't you tell everyone, like, you know, how'd you start your own business? Why'd you do it? What happened? So, uh, pandemic. Started. That's like Happened. the classic worry here. We're yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, so maybe, so March was when I stopped working, the middle of March, because I lost childcare. Both mm-hmm. my grandmothers were just, they wanted to keep watching her, but I just wasn't comfortable with it, you know, because I had been going to work and none of my coworkers were stoked or believing that it was real. Uh. So I came home from work the middle of March, like I just said, and (laughs) I didn't want to apply for unemployment because I was just stubborn. And I was like, this isn't going to last that long. Who knows if I'll need that money 
another time the rest of this year. <laughs> so I didn't apply for unemployment and I thought I have to make money. And I've had this huge collection, I'm not kidding, huge collection of vintage clothing that I've just always held on to and been adding to probably since I was like 13, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. And I had a brick and mortar for a little while in my friend's skate shop and it just didn't work out. So I just put everything back in storage and I've just been holding it on to it just kind of as this like, oh, all this will be worth a ton of money one day and I'll be able to retire, you know, which maybe, (laughs) maybe, yeah, maybe one day. So I started putting stuff or listing stuff on Depop when Maggie was young or much younger when she was taking longer naps (laughs) and it started to like, I started to like sell stuff and I was like, wow, this, I did not expect it because I thought, you know, people are at home, people don't know what's going to happen next and Mm -hmm. no one's going to be spending money. And I was so surprised at how much I sold, you know, like at least, three items a day. It was crazy because I, wow. I mean, it was crazy the first couple months. And then I finally got all my stuff listed and I was like, okay, well now what am I going to do? And I also have like this huge collection of fabric and material and quilts and just stuff that I've found. And I'm like, what can I do with this one day? So I listed a set that I had made out of a curtain, like a cartoon print children's 50s curtain, Mm -hmm. and it sold, like, immediately. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I made that, and someone bought it. That's so (laughs) crazy. That's awesome. So I contacted the chick who bought it, and I was like, thank you so much. I can't believe this sold. And she was like, yeah, I yeah, of course. It's dope. I can't wait to put it on. And she, like, posted it on her Instagram and tagged me. Just seeing how stoked she was, I was like, wow, I want to do more of that. I mean, I've always done, or not always, but in my adult life, I've done a lot of alteration and repair. Mm -hmm. Just as, like, side income. Or not really income, but, like, more money, not extra money, because it's not extra money. But... <laughs> there is no such thing as that. <laughs> yeah. But it, I've just always had, I'm really thankful that I've always had sewing to fall back on. How did you learn to sew? My mom is a quilter. I mean, not that's not like her gig, but she. we have this huge quilt machine in our garage. Oh. I live with my mom. Okay. So... She ran the 4-H group for, like, the sewing hobbies, 4-H. So that's when I started sewing, sewing, like, with a machine. Uh-huh. Uh, just uh, – so my mom taught me how to sew. Right, right. And that's awesome. To learn it at home, like, your mom's obviously a master. She's good at everything. It's really <laughs> – it's great. I mean, good for her, but <laughs> – <laughs> she's cool but yeah she, she's good at everything she's good at painting and drawing and sewing and whenever I don't know how to do something she can do it that's regardless awesome. of yeah whatever it is 
And if she can't figure it out, I probably can. That's that's <laughs> awesome. When I sold that set, I told my mom, and I was like, I just sold this. And she was like, wow, I knew you would. Like, congratulations. That's awesome. And at the time, she was working from home. And she was just like, cool, you know, no, nothing further than that. And I said, I think I'm going to try to do this, you know. And she was like, I support you. And I think now is like the perfect time. You know, you're living with me. Mm-hmm. Your expenses are a little lower than they would if you weren't living with me. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have thought of doing this, like pursuing this. I feel like I'm not really doing it, but I wouldn't have thought of pursuing this if I did not have her support. Right, right. I mean, I love, I love hearing another story of someone starting their own business and doing their own thing because of the pandemic, because you, you wouldn't expect that, you know? I mean, I, like, I feel like this is so many people I've talked to in the past few months and it's really the same thing for me. I certainly wouldn't be trying to like build some like media empire or whatever I'm doing (laughs) if I hadn't lost my job. You know, I'd just be working all the time for someone else. I have been like majority of this time. It's just been like me and Maggie, because my mom is always at her boyfriend's house who lives down the street, but she's just always there. So it's just me in solitude with my child. It's crazy. That's tough. That's tough. I remember a period like that when Dylan was Maggie's age and it wasn't a pandemic, but I didn't have a job and I couldn't find a job. So I couldn't get daycare until I could find a job. And I was so broke that it was just like us, just us. all the time because we'd moved to Portland where we didn't really know anyone and so it was it was hard like I am so sympathetic and empathetic to everyone who is trapped at home with their kids right now it is (laughs) really hard to be a mom you know I just really am trying to embrace it and I'm getting really good at it like whenever she throws a fit which isn't often she's a perfect little I got so lucky when when Dylan was young, did you have, like, mom friends or anything like that? No. Is that weird to ask? I'm sorry. No, no, totally. I mean, you. I told you to ask me questions, too. Uh, I had Dylan when I was 24, and mm-hmm. uh, definitely did people did not have kids when they were 24 that I knew. Um, I actually, like, not only did I not know anyone my age with a kid – uh, a lot of people just stopped being friends with me because I had a kid, you know. I had friends try to stage weird, like, you should get an abortion interventions with me and stuff like that. Like, it was a really, really tough time for me in, like, 9,000 ways because also Dylan's father died a few months before she was born. So it was just really, like, it was just me. How you know? dare you? Yeah. You're yeah. my friend. Um, and people were shitty to me. Like, it was really hard, even after we moved to Portland, People would sort of be like, yeah, like that guy was interested in you, but don't worry, I told him you have a kid. And I'm like, oh, so that's supposed to like be like the ultimate boner killer or, you know, people wouldn't invite me to do things because I had a kid. And it made me feel ashamed, you know, like then I remember going to see a doctor right after Dylan's father died. And that doctor was like, where's your partner? And was being really snotty with me. And I was like, he's dead. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I did not expect you to answer that. And I'm like, what did you expect? I remember one time being at Walmart buying diapers, and the teenage girl who rang me up was like, 
exactly how old were you when you had your daughter? And I was like 24. And she was like, oh, I just like, you look really young. Like that was just like kind of, it was really, really lonely, really, really hard. Somehow like it worked out. And I look back on those times, even though it was lonely and like people would make me feel like garbage. It was like a really happy time in my life too. You know, like I look back on it fondly. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know. I think that uh, a lot of people are really weird, even today, about single mothers or unmarried mothers or women who aren't following the path that they think they should to have kids, you know? Uh, yeah. Fuck people. Like, I know. That- <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's what the name of my biography will be. Fuck people. That's, that's kind of how I people. feel. I feel like... I always thought I was super feminist and then I had a kid and I was like, no, now I'm super feminist because now yeah. I see how for women, especially young women, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, you know, it's just like so hard and everybody judges you when you're a mom, especially if you're a single mom. That's a, I know that's a good yeah. but you know, I'm sure you have had your own experiences where people have been weird. Maggie's dad is, a lot younger than me. He just turned. He just turned twenty four. Oh wow! You're like a cougar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's me. <laughs> but like, I remember uh, when we first started dating, and I was ignoring all these red flags. He, I mean, I feel like most people are guilty of snooping, but uh, I saw that he had a message from this chick, and I confronted him about it, and he was like, "She has a kid." And I was like, what does that mean? And he was like, just thinking of that situation so long ago to where I am now. And I'm like, damn, no one's going to want to date me. Not that I'm actively trying to date people. But when I think of that, like, ugh. Oh, dude, it is, it like, I hate that it's something that gets into your head. But then, like, it's because even before you have a kid, you hear people say stuff like that. Like, but she has a kid. And, you know, for me, it was just like, there were just so many things I was trying to juggle in my brain. Because it was like, my mom has been married seven times. And I had a lot of really bad stepfathers in my life. And so I didn't want that for Dylan. So that was kind of a turnoff from dating. And, you know, it took me literally years to recover from her father's death. It was just so deeply traumatic, you know? And uh, by the time I started dating again, it was like all of these, this idea that I was like a lesser, a less valuable person because I had a kid was like in my brain, no matter how hard I tried to push it out. I hated when I would start seeing someone, I'd eventually have to be like, oh yeah, I have a kid. Like I dreaded it. It would make me, nauseous to have to have that conversation and it was never a good conversation ever I swear uh by the time I met Dustin I mean Dylan was much older and he was like yeah whatever who cares (laughs) you know (laughs) but it was like this long journey to get to that point like I remember I was like super in love with this guy we had this on again off again thing for like a year or two and he was pretty much like well, we can't ever be serious because you have a kid. Like, I'm not going to marry someone who has a kid. What? I know. I know. I mean, that was like, oh, just like, 
God, why? It was yeah, I mean, so painful. Me, yeah, me personally, like now, now that I've had all this time to myself, you know, just me and Maggie, I'm like, it makes me more valuable of a person that I can do all this shit by myself. So um, Yes, I know. I mean, I will tell you, I've had this journey. I've had time to reflect. And I'm like, you know what? I'm like a fucking catch because I can do all this shit all by myself. I can fix things. I can do the laundry. I can cook the food. I can raise the kid. I can make the money. I can do it all by myself. You know, that is like, who wouldn't want to date someone like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's hard. It's, it's hard. Really it's really fucking hard. Society, like society. I'm. I feel like such a ding saying that, but like society, man. Yeah, but it's it's true, and it's like it's 2020. Why the fuck is that still an attitude? Yeah. You know? But like a single dad. I don't even. Oh, get started what a hero! I know. I know. I can't. I can't even handle it. In fact. Someone tried to set me up with a single dad, and I was like, yeah, that would be cool. Like, other kids to be around, other parents. Yeah. And that guy could not handle the fact that I had a kid. Explain that to me. You being a single mom and, like, building your own business, like, this is a story that everyone needs to know. And everyone needs to support you and, like, encourage you and (laughs) be like, yeah, I I want to hear dope-ass shit, you know? (laughs) And I've talked to you about this before, not, like, conversation mouth to mouth or not mouth to mouth but like you know what I mean yeah that was weird I'm sorry (laughs) mouth to mouth is so gross especially during a pandemic like no mouth to mouth someone's getting sick yeah someone's definitely getting sick and a wet but I had talked to you about like I I get frustrated with myself feeling this way that like I want to put single mom in my Instagram bio. I've talked to you about this before, but I also don't want, like, all the sympathy. Like, I don't want the sympathy, but also, like, I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say. No, I know what you mean, and I've always, I've always been that way, too. But, like, turn it around. You're doing this all by yourself, and you're making all these sick clothes. Like, yeah, yeah, people should buy from you. Then I feel like if I were to make more of that be, like, my thing, I mean, I'm comfortable posting photos of Maggie and stuff, but I also don't want to feel like I'm using her. I know. Like I'm I, I get using that. my situation as. But you're not. Because you're just living your truth, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you are your brand. I mean, I get it. There's, like, all these terrible, like, mommy Instagrammers who literally are making money off their kids, you know, yeah. and that always feels weird to me because, like, how does it feel to be those kids? But that's not that's not what you're doing. I mean, you're just you're being authentic about who you are. And like you said, when we started talking, like there needs to be more of that because so many yeah. of the like influencers that are like big right now are just so fake. Like nothing about them is real. And that doesn't make me want to buy the things that they are trying to sell me. Yeah. And then I think, like, fuck, would people buy more or less from me if they knew more about me? Like, if I said I used to, like, not have a job and just ride my motorcycle all over the place and just camp, like, would people buy more shit from me and think I was cooler if they knew that about me? Like, 
I think so. You know, like tell yeah. your real story. And this is something that I have like struggled with so much in my life because especially working in like a more corporate, like imagery environment, yep. like fashion, I could never be who I really was. I couldn't, I mean, I have worked with people who never knew I had a kid ever period until after I stopped working there. Like I would keep that to myself. I wouldn't talk about like, you know, how I grew up in a trailer park. Like I wouldn't talk about any of that stuff. And for me, like that just feels so gross to shame someone into not being who they are. And so I am excited when I see people who aren't like fabulously wealthy, thin, white people being themselves on the internet. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like speaking their yeah. terms. And I think I feel like that is the wave that we're all going to ride in 2021 where more and more of that like fake veneer is going to fall to the side and people like you who are like really being truthful about who you are and inviting people into your life, those are the people that are going to become like iconic to this yeah. like next era. And maybe I'm just being like really optimistic, but I just already see it like crumbling, you know? Well, are you working on any cool new stuff for, you know? Yeah. January? Well, yeah. okay. So I have started, you know, thinking about maybe doing quilt coats. Uh-huh. But I don't think I'm going to do that. There are just so many people that are doing that, and they're perfecting them, and I want to do something different. I mean, people are doing these pullover sweater sweater things, too, mm-hmm. but no two quilts are the same. Like, right. every quilt is so fucking different from the next one. So I've been doing a lot of pullovers and, like, appliques on crew necks and stuff like that but I think the biggest thing that I'm working on and like super stoked on is uh hoodies I've been doing like not super cropped but just like a little bit not oversized but just like uh not big I don't know what the right word is but kind of maybe like boxy but I've been doing a raglan sleeve oh so I feel like they're they're much more flattering uh-huh. than just, a, like, a classic crew neck with, like, the boxy shoulders. These are just – I just posted a few photos of them, and they're super cute. And the quilt that I made a few out of is, like, this very warm uh, flannel backing with, like, a super bright polyester topper. I mean, I usually stay away from polyester quilts because mm-hmm. it's, like – what the fuck? Like, you don't want that touching your skin. But the the part that touches your skin is this cotton flannel that's super warm and thick. So that's what I've been working on. I'm looking Just at them right study. now. They're they're really, really cute. When I first started listening to Clothes Horse, and it was an episode with Danny from Picnic Wear, mm-hmm. you guys were talking about the girl who was selling her hats for $30, and I was like, oh, my God, that's me. They're talking about me. <laughs> and then I was like, shit, I'm the girl who was, like, selling herself short. Yeah, because but your hats are a work of art. Like, they are so beautiful. Dope. Yeah, and, like, you know what? For $30, you could go to, like, I don't know. You could go to, like, Target and get a, yeah. like a hat, right? Well, so this is way cooler than that. Yeah. And, well, I think I when I was – when I had that price, 
I had asked people, people who aren't makers, just people who don't know how long it takes to make anything. And I didn't take that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't take that into consideration. And I asked a few people, you know, like, do you think $30 is too much? And they would say, you know, like, no, like a a hat from uh, like Target is $30. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. You know, (laughs) like I didn't even take offense to that. And now I think of it and I'm like, ugh fuck you for comparing me to like, uh, I'm not that. I'm not no, that. no, these are not mass produced. They're well-made. They're really unique and beautiful. And like, you know, also you're not getting paid eight cents an hour to make it. You know what I mean? Like it should be more expensive. I feel like I kind of raised my prices a little bit recently mm-hmm. and there are other people who are doing similar stuff. And I'm like, you should raise your prices, but, you know, it's not my place. I don't know. I mean, maybe you should have them listen to that episode where Danny and I talk about your hats. And <laughs> they'll understand. Because I think yeah. it's hard to, like, take a step back and put a value on your work. And it's something I think about all the time, that especially women are never supposed to think about the value of their work. Because, like, you know, who's going to... Think about how much you should be getting paid to take care of Maggie, the value of that work, right? And so we do so much stuff for free that our work becomes valueless in our minds. And, like, no, dude, you made a hat. I I can't make a hat, but it looks really hard and complicated. And, you know, you're doing it for someone else so they don't have to go make their own hat. There's a, so much value there. And I think it's the hardest lesson for any creative person to learn. I mean, I – When I was doing freelance work, I would undervalue myself constantly, where I'd be like, I can't believe I just did this whole project for $10 an hour. You know, like, why did I do that? Why did I quote that price? Because I was afraid of seeming like I was asking for too much. And, like, you just shouldn't do that. Yeah, (laughs) I completely understand. And then I'm also like, but my prices are still lower than other people. Should I raise my prices so I'm exactly at what other people who have more of a following are pricing their stuff at? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably going to be, it's, it's hard to say, right? I think that what you need to do is like really sit down and look at all of your expenses. That's what, you know, companies do. Like sit down and say, this is how much the materials cost. This is how much my time costs. These are my fees for big cartel. This is the time I spend taking photos and posting on Instagram and all that stuff and shipping things. Okay, how much does all that time cost? And then that's going to get you to how much your hats should cost. Yeah. And I feel like a lot um, more people have friends that are starting businesses or not starting business, but a lot more people have friends that are you know, making their own shit and posting stuff that's like, it's, it's sad, but awesome that everyone refers back to Instagram or not everyone, but a lot of people, you know, are very influenced by what they see. So if they see their friend post, like a small business owner is all of these things, you know, they ship, they do this, that, you know, people are more aware, Mm -hmm. but there's still a lot of people that are not aware. (laughs) I feel like so many people are making stuff now psychologically, it's hard for you to understand things unless you have a personal connection to it. 
it turns out right. we're all like, self-centered. And so if you don't know anyone who makes stuff and you've never made anything yourself and you see someone selling a hat for $60 on Instagram, you're like, fuck that, I can go get two at Target, right? But then you, yeah. you make one or your friends are and you see how much they're working and they're going to the post office and they're talking about, like, all the times, how time to me is to take photos and stuff and all those things. And you're like, oh, wow, it's like a lot of work to run a business, you know? So I think, like, the more people can be really transparent about that, the more people are going to be educated about it. And I also think, you know, it's the same thing. Like, most people don't realize that when you pay $30 for a hat, all the people that were involved in making it got paid a total altogether of, like, 12 cents. You know, when you hear yeah. that, then you're like, oh, wait, what? It's sickening. Yeah. It's sickening. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think spreading the word about that also explains more why a hat should be $60 or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. I feel like I was kind of growing up and buying or turning into, like, an adult on my own Mm -hmm. when the garbage clothes started, or I don't know. You were probably, like, a teenager, I would say. Yeah. Late teens. Late teens, early 20s, yeah, and, like, I would go to Forever 21 with my friends and, like, buy a few things and, like, <laughs> wear them a few times and then just put them in my drawer, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I think, man, when I think about that, that time, go, you know, it was like you would joke with your friends, well, like, it's just from Forever 21. You kind of expected it was going to break or rip in a couple wears, and it was, like, no big deal. And to say that out loud, it's like, uh, that's, like, super fucked up. But we were all, like, socialized. But, like, yeah, to go buy a dress at Forever 21 and wear it once, twice, and then have it, like, totally fall apart, like, no big deal. You know, like, you you were expecting that that garment would not last. You know, and I, when I think of all the Forever 21 clothes that came in and out of my life during a certain several year period, I am like, my brain can't handle it. Like, it freaks me out so hard. Cause like, the thing is, those clothes weren't even nice enough to donate to the Goodwill. Yeah. They were just like, they go in the trash can and that, that makes me so sad. Sometimes I would rip them up and like macrame things with them, but some of those fabrics, you couldn't even do that because they would like, (laughs) disintegrate into thread. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's just how bad it was. And so I just, uh, yeah. So Forever 21 is still around for now. It would be really great if we could all get rid of Forever 21 this year, you know? Like, on it. Uh, it's kind of weird to think about all these mall companies being like, shit, we have to protect Forever 21 or the mall's <laughs> going to die. So that's where we are, you know? My precious. Yeah. Next, it's like we got to protect Cinnabon or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also during that time of like, I feel like, um, you know, like Seven Jeans and oh yeah, Citizens of Humanity. We all thought like, oh, because it's more expensive and it's a hundred and twenty dollars or more for a pair of jeans, they're gonna last a long time. But it's like kind of the same thing you know depending on the denim and stuff I remember and this is when I was like so broke that I couldn't even afford a car of any sort and I couldn't afford the bus so I would like put Dylan on the back of my bike and take her everywhere like this was that time of my life 
I say it now, though, and I'm like, that is so dangerous. Oh, my God. What was I thinking? But it was in Portland. (laughs) It was a different time. Anyway, someone (laughs) gave me, and it was so thoughtful. Um, It was this girl who had some insane amount of money and whose parents would just buy her gifts all the time that she didn't care about, and she would return. And she returned something to Saks Avenue that was like $150, and she was like, they would only give me store credit. I wanted cash. Just take this card. I don't want anything from there. And I was like, what? I've never even been in a Saxon Avenue. Like, what? Same. You're right. So I go down there. I'm like, I am going to get myself a pair of those seven jeans people are talking about. I'm going to look so cool. I'm going to wear them all the time because I would literally wear the same pair of jeans just over and over and over again until they turned into dust. And I'm like, these jeans are going to last me like five years. I won't have to buy any other jeans. It's going to be amazing. Go in there. I buy a pair of seven jeans. They gave me a glass of champagne while I tried them on. It was a very luxurious experience to me. Whoa. I know. That's That's crazy. Crazy, right? I get these jeans. I wear them to work. People are like, damn, you look so good. So I knew it was a good purchase. Less than two weeks in, they blow out in the crotch from riding Uh, my bike. And I was like, these are $150 jeans. So the same girl who gave me that gift card was like, hey, this is Saks Fifth Avenue. They need to fucking take those back. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I look like a poor person. They're thinking that I'm scamming them. She's like, no, go in there. So I go in there, yeah. return them. Okay. I got a pair of citizens instead. They took them back. They were kind of weird. They were like, um, we don't usually advise that people ride bikes in jeans. And I was like, this is Portland, Oregon. Like, everybody <laughs> rides bikes here. Yeah, yeah so they, I swapped them for a pair of citizens that lasted a little bit longer, but let me tell you, when they started to fall apart, it was like all at once. It was like, imagine yeah. driving a car down the road and you get a flat tire and then all of a sudden the doors fall off too. That's like what happened <laughs> to these jeans. It was so crazy. The <laughs> so belt yeah. loops just fall off. Oh, yeah. the belt loops, the pocket like ripped out on the bottom, the knees were blowing out, they're like shredding on the bottom. And it was just like, wow, these jeans went from like really great to like total unsalvageable garbage in like one week it was so bizarre but uh yeah yeah, those jeans weren't better but we got tricked into it you know we wore them with forever 21 tops we recorded that phone call using the closed horse hotline which reminds me if you have a story to share an opinion on seven jeans a thought that has occurred to you that you want to share or if you just have a question for me please call the hotline it's my favorite thing about 2020 I, that is not an overstatement. I really mean that. The number is 717-925-7417. And I'll also share that in the show notes. Although I think I'm starting to memorize that number and I don't have any numbers memorized outside of my own. Like sometimes I can remember Dustin's and we're married. <laughs> okay. Now it's time to get to know MP of Ungarbage Magazine. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. I think it's really going to inspire you to make some changes that are good for you in 2021. I know it's already got me rethinking a lot of the things that I do just because they're like habit, you know? I do have to call out that there's a lot of bad cat behavior in this episode, and in fact, As I've been even recording this portion, there's been a lot of bad cat behavior happening behind me. I don't know what's going on with these cats. During this interview, Brenda broke a plant pot. I cut that part out because it was so loud. (laughs) You might go deaf if you hear it. 
And when I heard it while editing, it scared the pants off of me because I had totally forgotten that it happened. I mean, it was just so loud and sudden. But you can also hear her crinkling paper during some sections of this episode. Uh, Maybe by the time I hand this off to Justin to mix, it will sound a little bit better. But it was just one of those days where Brenda was having a heyday with all the paper and packing materials I've been hoarding in my office. Think of all that great background sound as ambiance and, you know, like a slice of what it's like to live in our weird household. (laughs) So without further ado, let's get into this. Today, I'm joined by MP, who is actually, I guess, our first guest that is recording from Canada. So this is like an international episode. And MP is the person behind Ungarbage Magazine. So why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah. So my name's MP. Um, it's just short for Marie-Pierre, which is, um, so I'm French-Canadian, so I'm from the French part of the country. Um, so English is my second language, if you find that I have a weird accent or I'm, I'm saying words weird. That's that's quite normal. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm the founder of Ungarbage Magazine. Um, I started the magazine two years ago. I really wanted to recreate like a a slow experience of consumption of information um, and also just recreate the experience of like when I was younger, being able to just sit down with a magazine and being excited at looking at the new fashion and new things that were happening, but in, you know, in a, an amount that I could digest and not like, mm-hmm. I'm going to look at this, I'm going to look at that, I'm going to look at that and all at once. Um yeah, I just wanted to recreate this like relaxing way of consuming information. Um, and I am super passionate about garbage. I love taking pictures of trash literally on the street. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, actually. <laughs> it's surprising how many people are actually into it, but are not like telling anyone. Um <laughs> Uh, so many people I mean are like I love tattoo but like everyone thinks I'm so weird but uh there's something beautiful about trash I find like there's something you know um in in Toronto where I live sometimes people leave their their stuff on the sidewalk and you can just kind of pick it up if anything you're interested in and what got me started was a bunch of skates and Christmas decorations and plates that were all on the ground but it was arranged so beautifully I was like wow this is like so pretty right now I don't know what's going on with me (laughs) but (laughs) I love this pile of trash. And so I started to just walk around for hours taking pictures of, of stuff that we miss that is ugly and beautiful. I, I always find there's something at the line of like beauty and ugliness. Like there's something so interesting there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like trash is is right on that line. So um, so yeah, that kind of led me to create this magazine. And then we also talk about like environmental issues, um, sustainable fashion, um, the impact of fast fashion, um, not just on the planet, but on the people who make our clothes. Um, so we talk about a variety of topic. We also talk about um, social justice issues, um, try to make sure everyone is represented. So I just really wanted to kind of do a redo of the lifestyle magazine who's um, who's now so lame and just full of advertising. Oh. I know. I know. I mean, when you were talking about magazines, I 
and I talk about this sometimes on the, on the podcast, like magazines were one of my greatest pleasures when I was a teenager. I just loved you know, going to get them and bring them home and, you know, lying in bed and just looking at them and thinking and daydreaming and making collages out of them. And somewhere along the line, magazines just got really terrible. Even now, if I'm, if I'm going to go on a flight or go to the beach, I think like, oh, it'd be fun to get some magazines. And then I look at them in the shop and they're so lame. Mm-hmm. They're practically catalogs really at this point, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's you basically pay money for people to tell you that you should be skinnier and you should be more stylish and you should buy all these things and, you know, go have a coffee there, go travel there. And it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I don't want to pay to feel bad right now. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I wanted to feel bad, I could, for free, I could just go on Instagram, <laughs> you know, which we're going to talk about a lot today. I do think there is... Man, there is something so beautiful and fascinating about trash and what it says about the people who live there. I love to sort of daydream. When I see a really interesting pile of trash, I want to – I like to daydream about what happened there. Like how did those things end up there? Who did they belong to? What were the people like? I, I, you know, I like to create these stories in my mind. It's like nice to go out for a walk and find some good trash and think about it. <laughs> totally. And just like how I find it, there's such a sadness in like these people used to love these things mm-hmm. and they got it maybe as a gift and it was the most precious thing they could have. And now suddenly it's worthless and it's on the sidewalk. And so I also, when I was taking pictures of them, I always feel like I'm giving you a new life because now you are art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Like, Extending the life of the stuff around us isn't just about using it in a weird way. And, you know, I mean, I I will tell you, if I see some really good trash that I think has a, some extended life in it, I totally bring it home. I'm We have a bunch of furniture in our house like that. <laughs> but And I always am taking books out of trash too. But I – I don't know. I in Philadelphia especially we had I saw some just amazing trash all the time. You know, just something to like think about as I was going for my like, you know, quarantine walk. Speaking of trash, a lot of outfits and clothes get trashed all the time. And you and I were talking when we were preparing for this episode about this phenomenon of people feeling this pressure that they can only wear something on Instagram or any social media one time. And I found a study, it was conducted by an organization called RAP that found one in three women consider a garment old after one or two wears. And it's kind of feeding our consumption, you know, our buying, and it's also feeding the trash piles. Mm Mm-hmm. And you said you were going. You had a story about a yellow shirt to share. Oh yeah, I was reading that influencers buy um, clothing to take pictures of, and then they return it to the stores. So I would. So they were saying in the article that stores end up with so much clothing leftovers, and it kind of ruins their um, their production quotas. Like they think they're going to sell this much, but really or not because it gets returned and we both know that things that get returned um, not just clothing most things that get returned end up in the trash so I was so Mm -hmm. horrified by that I had no idea and I decided I would wear the same shirt for like a month not literally every day but like on social media all my pictures would only be me wearing this shirt and I also wore it like a few times a week (laughs) so I did wear it a lot um 
And so, and I picked the like the silliest shirt. It was like yellow with uh, black polka dots. It was a vintage shirt that I bought in Montreal. So I thought it would be fun. So, and people really got into it because I I realized that more people than we think are they feel annoyed by this trend. Like they feel the pressure of having to always find new outfits and make sure they always look different. And like, we really have to normalize repeating outfits because it's not real life to just wear a different thing every time we see friends or every time we post a picture of ourselves. It's interesting that you talk about uh, how a lot of influencers buy stuff and return it. I've also seen influencers who are straight up going into the fitting room with a friend, having them take a picture in the outfit, and then Photoshopping it to make it look like they actually wore it outside of the fitting room. And Oh, yeah, yeah. When you think about, <laughs> I've seen that a lot. Yeah. When you think about people doing that just to provide that outfit of the day, it's so silly. It's just so silly. And yet, you know, that's their job, I guess, is to wear a new outfit every day. But I, I think – I'm glad that people are, I don't know, like getting over it because – I think we need to give them a different job, which is wearing the same clothes in new and interesting ways. I understand that influencer <laughs> is a job. I'm not saying fire all influencers, but it definitely does feed our need to have new stuff all the time. I actually found this quote from a psychologist named Tara Quinn Cirillo, and she said, human beings feel safer when they're following the crowd. It's something called the herd instinct. So whenever you're feeling a bit anxious, we feel safe to do what other people do will follow the masses in the crowd in terms of certain behavior. So that includes wearing a new outfit every day on Instagram. You know, I, I hope no one listens to this and is like, oh, that's a great idea. Now to wear a new outfit every day, I'll just return them. But <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, don't, don't do, do, don't don't do, do that. <laughs> um, and, you know, once again, influencers are not bad people. They're actually a really – what's a job? One, they're working. But two – they are a tool, a marketing tool for so many companies because the the budget that brands and retailers would put into, say, like a catalog or a, or events 10 years ago, they now direct to influencers. They're saying like, here, we'll send you some clothes. We'll pay you to post in them. You can go to this event and wear our clothes and take photos and we'll just share those rather than sending our own team to events or sponsoring events. Like we're just – we're going to put it all into Instagram basically. Yeah, and like the positive thing too is that it it creates an opportunity for more different people to represent brands. Mm -hmm. And so like you don't have to just now see skinny white women, right? You can see different people with different style and they can style um, fashion from different brands in a different way. Um, so like there's positives, I think, from it and like influencers who are responsible and who are saying, you know, I'm sharing the outfits to to give you ideas, but I'm not always saying I oh, here's a fashion haul I just did or, you know, um, they're not showing wearing different things every day. Like, I think there's a balance that can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but unfortunately, it's not everyone doing that. Like some are truly just, um, like you said, a tool. They're just getting paid. They're pretty much like walking marketing. Yeah. Like they're they're a human they're a human marketing machine. They are, yeah, they are. <laughs> I mean, when you say it that way, it sounds so disturbing. And I was, you know, before we started recording, I was talking about Instagram. How I was really riled up about it today because I've been thinking about it a lot. How I get so torn about Instagram. You know. A lot of people have quit Facebook because, you know, Facebook is up to all kinds of bad things. But, you know, in 
Facebook owns Instagram and I've thought so many times about quitting Instagram, but then I'm I'm also like, this is my window into a lot of my friends' lives, especially right now when I can't see them. And it's a great Mm -hmm. way to spread information and meet new people. And, you know, it's a, it can be a really strong tool for activists. It can be this really strong tool, but now it's basically a mall. And I sometimes will open my Instagram and all it is is stuff I can buy or someone trying to sell me something or an influencer who is being a marketing tool for someone who wants to sell something. And, you know, everybody's like, well, I'll just quit Instagram, but it's, it's not that simple, right? Yeah. And I think if you quit Instagram, you're also missing out on the good side of it. Um, and also, um, just to add, like, I think there's influencers who are promoting things and that also supports them in making a living. So they can then inspire people with other things that are not mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for purchase. Um, so there needs to be a balance. And I think one thing that we can all do that we have control over is to um, control our feet. Like you can easily unfollow the people who um, who trigger you. Like and there's sometimes there's people I love following, but they also trigger me. And sometimes yeah. I just mute them for a bit because I'm like, oh, I love you and stuff, but you trigger me so much. <laughs> you make me feel a little <laughs> bit like crap. So good night for now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think that's really true. I this year started really pruning my feed more than I ever have. Because for a long time, if I saw something remotely interesting, I would follow it. Or if I saw, you know, my friends would share something, I'd follow that. You know, and I had, I was following a lot of people who made me feel bad or I didn't like what they stood for. Or they were like not being careful about COVID, you know, and that would upset me. I would spend all day being upset because I saw someone take a vacation to the Bahamas. And I was like, I don't, I don't need that, you know? <laughs> like me being upset doesn't change them not being careful. So I started to prune it back and I actually enjoy Instagram so much more now. I don't even see that much shopping actually, but I I there were moments earlier in the year where that was like all I was seeing and it made me feel even more depressed than I already was with everything going on. I was like, great. So now I just can look at things I can't afford to buy, you know? Yeah, totally. And like the, on my end, it was more like I was following so many activists and uh, people who care about like the environment, about social justice. And I almost was following too many. And it was giving me massive anxiety of like, I'm not doing enough. Uh, the world mm-hmm. is going to blow up. And like, I, I like I'm this useless human being who doesn't contribute. And it was it was creating so much anxiety. I felt like I have to like hold the entire world in my arms, you know, and <laughs> I actually had to like unfollow a few. I was like, OK, I need to, you know, pick the, the ones I like the most and make sure I get information. And it's important. But also like you can kind of exhaust yourself either way. You can you can create so much anxiety from from not feeling good enough from seeing people having perfect outfits, but it can be from other things too. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's true. I mean, for me, it's been like people who have a bunch of kids or are, mm-hmm. you know, buying a house or I don't know, you know, all these things that like I just don't exist in my life right now or I'll like use them as like a yardstick of where I should be and where I'm not. You know, that kind of thing will depress me too. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean – It is interesting because I was reading a little bit about that today, and the American Psychological Institute did a wide-reaching study into the effects of specifically Instagram on people, and 
They found that it correlated to anxiety, depressive symptoms, self-esteem and body dissatisfaction, and just a whole litany of bad mental health problems, you know? Yeah, I mean, so it's not surprising. I mean, we always think that the grass is greener on the other side, and Instagram is like, I'll show you some grass from other people. <laughs> it's just yeah, all day. yeah, that's a good way to put it. They will, they'll like show you all the best grass on there. Yeah. <laughs> and I, that's the thing I have, you know, I'm pretty cynical about social media. So when I get bummed out looking at it, I'm kind of angry at myself and have to give myself a pep talk. But, you know, one thing I remind myself of all the time that it's very simple and I think can be carried through all of social media and what you see is like think about when you are going to take a selfie of yourself, how many pictures you take to find the one that you like mm -hmm. and all the – it's like a laborious process. Anytime I see a photo of a really ideal situation on social media that makes me feel bad or feel jealous or envious or anything like that – I just remember that they probably took a bunch of photos to get there. <laughs> and who knows what's cropped out of the background? There might be a huge bald spot in that grass. Yeah. You know? No, totally. <laughs> so anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit about this long history of sort of media selling stuff to women and, and working this into a frenzy where we have to buy things. So, you know, you have to start way back in the day before social media, which it's like sometimes even though I grew up without social media, I have to really think hard to remember what it was like. It's it's so funny. Sometimes I'll even watch a movie or a television show from the 70s or the 80s or in the 90s and I will find myself thinking like this would all be different if everyone just had a smartphone. This movie wouldn't exist, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like Home Alone, for example, you know, they would have – he could have called his parents on their way to the airport. <laughs> you know? And that would have been the end of the movie. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> right, right. It's so strange to think about it. So it must be really hard to write a movie in 2020 because, you know, like a lot of plot devices are gone. <laughs> so – Back in the day, the way you really reached women to get them to buy things was via magazines and television commercials. And the focus in the 50s and the 60s especially was really on telling women that they were supposed to be a good mother and a wife with like a clean, nice home, serving the most nutritious and delightful looking meals, uh, being thin. Being thin is a common thread in all of trying to sell women's stuff. Mm -hmm. Um in the 70s and then onward, being sexy became an integral part of that. Like you were still supposed to care for your family, be a good wife and mother unless you were younger. And you were supposed to be sexy at all times, well-groomed, you know, boobs on display, <laughs> that kind of stuff, big bouncy hair. And you should also probably, as we got into the 80s, consider adding a career into the mix. Uh, I mean, I think that like by now – even though we still have that drilled into our heads all the time, I think more and more people are starting to realize like, oh, we're kind of being sold a false bill of goods. You can't have all of those things, unfortunately, um, unless you have a ton of money so you can have a lot of help. And, you know, I just – it's not achievable, you know? Yeah. It's not uh, achievable, but 
we we try anyways i feel like it's in our subconscious of like mm-hmm. how can i be the the best in my career how can i be the the skinniest the how can my hair be perfect like it these things um even though we are starting to hear messages that are saying like accept yourself as you are and like everyone's beautiful and you don't have to go for these standards of beauty that are always changing anyways so how are you supposed to achieve a standard of beauty that changes every like five ten years it's like even right. the, the idea of thinness is different in the 2000 than now like now mm-hmm. you're supposed to be thin but you're supposed to have halves also you can't just be thin you got to be strong and thin so mm-hmm. it's like we're mm-hmm. always chasing something that is impossible and i mean um marketers like branding and marketing is about making us chase something that's not possible so we have to buy things to get to that impossible stage and then once we are they change it on us so we can keep buying things like it's so crazy to think about it is it is i mean i've been in meetings where it's like okay well january is coming uh it's really important that we push like you know losing weight and active wear and stuff because you know like that's a good angle. People feel bad after Christmas from all the food they've eaten. So let's push that. Let's get people to buy leggings and new sneakers. And, you know, it, it's a constant – I mean, this is happening constantly behind the scenes. It's been interesting to see some of the marketing that definitely is focused on women right now. You know, there are – specifically this year in COVID, during COVID, like, you know, there are all these blogs out there that are really just – a woman's magazine on the internet that's just an advertising tool, you know, like Refinery29 and Bustle, and they're just selling you things, right? And I just keep seeing so many articles that are like, how to avoid gaining weight during COVID, or if you already gained weight during COVID, here's what you can do. Workout tips to work out at home, diets you can try at home. Like everybody's already like, okay, everybody feels bad right now. Like let's take advantage of that. (laughs) you know, and like kind of guilt you that you aren't maximizing your quarantine time, I guess. Yeah, it's so bad. If I feel like all these stocks, like the, the, the whole diet culture thing, I feel like is about um, getting women stuck and the idea that they have to be thin. And while we think about our bodies and our appearance and 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 all of that all day, we're not thinking about how can I take that man's job? <laughs> you know? Yeah, like yeah. we are, but in the background is like, oh, but maybe I'm not skinny enough yet, or maybe I need the next outfit yet. And it's like men don't care about that. They can be fat, they can be bald, they can be whatever, and they can just go get that job. So I feel like it's just to keep us busy so we don't steal all their all their things. <laughs> and it, I mean it's working. I think about all of the offices I've worked in, you know, working in fashion and buying, you generally work with women. And I would never hear women say mean things about one another's work or skills. It would be like, she looks fat. That outfit's ugly. What's wrong with her face? Like it was never the real substance, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I think it is, it's, it's successful. <laughs> Yeah, it's like we can't even get to the next level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really disturbing. And so, you know, we've seen all of this, like like MP was saying, like the idea of what body is we should be aspiring to have has changed with each decade along with the lifestyle we should be having. Like in the early aughts, it was very overtly sexy. Like, And we were supposed to also maybe be just like a little bit dumb thinking of like Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, this idea of like, objectifying yourself and being owning your sexuality by being very sexy at all times and thong underwear and low-rise pants and just all all of this stuff. 
And it was like, it was very youth focused. I think it was a really terrible time to be a young woman. Oh my because, God, yeah. Like, Too much gloss also. There was so much gloss I oh, couldn't deal with it. Yes, it's true. <laughs> and or lip plumper. Do you remember that? <laughs> like the stuff you would put on your lips that would make them swell up. Oh, oh yeah. It was like fizzy. I can never do anything with lips. I feel like the taste of it is disgusting. So in the 2000 with the gloss, I was like, I cannot do this. And I feel like it looks ridiculous. (laughs) It does. And I have to tell you, I have this thing, like a sensory thing where I cannot handle the thought of my hair getting stuck in lip gloss, which (laughs) is what happens because it's like sticky and gross. And so I think I one time bought a tube of lip gloss, wore it once, and was like, this isn't for me. <laughs> like, I'm never – I can't wait for this trend to pass. <laughs> Even just just drinking water, like you're trying to drink water and like the entire rim of the water bottle is covered in oh, it. It's so gross. So gross. In that era, I was working retail. And so one thing I would do all day, I swear, is pick up abandoned water bottles and Starbucks cups and they all had it on it. <laughs> And it has like a smell, yeah, you know? It's the worst, yeah. It's the worst. It's the worst. It's so gross. And since then, we've sort of shifted into this, I feel, it's it's like a fake better situation, but it's not better. It just it's, – it's got this like fake air of authenticity that's – that is, like I said, super fake, which is like, you know, wellness and like the zero makeup look that is actually like 20 products from Glossier, you know? Yeah. Zero makeup, but 26 filters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. And like, you know, a whole shelf of like 20 skincare products that you use every day to get that per- impeccable, natural, no makeup look. Like it's absurd, you know? <laughs> totally. And, and so that's where we are right now, where if you're like, I actually feel more confident wearing a ton of makeup, then you're not cool, you know? Or if you are like, I don't like wellness or whatever, you know, wellness is, is really just more body shaming in a different package, right? Yeah, because now you have to naturally get there. You're not supposed to even try or look like you try. Right, as if people don't get plastic surgery still, as if people aren't getting all kinds of crazy face fillers and whatnot. Yeah, actually, I was reading an article about, or was it a documentary? I I was reading something or or listening to a a documentary on something that women are going to their plastic surgeons and bringing pictures of themselves with a filter, with Instagram filters, and they're saying they want to look like that. Like, and then, uh, there's like a huge problem. Everyone's trying to have their Instagram face. Oh, I hate that. I hate that. It's so disturbing because those filters, I, I, if I could start like an international organization that fights for like no filters on Instagram, like I would, I hate them so much. (laughs) I think they're so stupid and we can tell it's like, we can tell you're orange right now. Uh, We can tell you're so smooth out that like, you don't even have a nose. Like I know that your (laughs) eyes are not this big. Like who are we? Why do, why, why are we doing that? What are we doing? I know. I know there's this, um, I don't follow this influencer, but I, people post about, uh, about her a lot on Reddit. So I'm kind of like fascinated by her. Her name's Danielle Bernstein. And she is incapable of doing anything without extreme like Photoshop and filter manipulation. And she even uses this crazy video filter that stretches her head out. 
So she has like a cone head and it's really, really weird. And I'm like, why? Don't do that. It is so weird. I'm like checking it out right now because I'm like, ooh, I want to know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I uh, there's There are two accounts I follow that actually like point out all of her craziness and her crazy like Photoshop behavior. Uh, it's one's oh. called uh, We We Over What, and the other one is called We Photoshopped What Too. And I mean, it's egregious. Uh, it, you know, it's so sad too because like it, there can't be true happiness. You know, like behind the scenes, like she posted, people say, oh my I God, know. you look great. It's great. But like, we all know, like whatever, if we're using a filter or we're trying to edit ourselves or whatever, we just know that that's not real. So how can it be, how can it make us truly happy? Like, I don't believe in it. I think everyone's looking at somebody else thinking they're better. So like, I feel like even this chick is probably looking at someone else's account and thinking, oh, maybe this person's doing it without the apps and without the filter. And then the next person's talking about the next person. Like no one actually feels like I'm here. I'm good right now. You know? That's yeah. That's the saddest part. Yeah. It's, it's really sad. I, I get both sad and angry about it because clearly – she has a lot of internal issues to work out and she must feel so bad about herself every day. And I mean, we've all experienced that. That's not a good way to live your life. And then to live that life in the public eye, I mean, I it's it sounds so painful to me. But then conversely, I'm like, you know what? You do you Photoshop yourself down to like half your size and stretch out your head, and suddenly everybody's looking at this on Instagram, and that's getting into their brains that they need to have a stretched out head and a really skinny body to be appealing. Because you know her followers aren't saying, "Oh, I bet this is a filter." They're saying, "This is really her. Why can't I look like her?" Well, guess what? No one can look like her because she doesn't look like her. Yeah, it's insidious. You know, it's like. It breeds more unhappiness and it probably also breeds more use of all these filters and whatnot. So it just – it's like an avalanche that just keeps picking up size yeah. as it moves through the world. I feel like there needs to be some sort of accountability for brands or you know uh, companies who would support uh, people like that. Like I feel like there should be some kind of – I don't want to say law, but there should be something like guidelines for brands to say like, oh, no, we can't support influencers or people on Instagram who transform themselves, who create um, anxiety, mental health problem for 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 young people, you know, like and, and I agree. And we should say, no, I'm not going to buy from you if you keep doing this because you're contributing to us being and spiraling again around beauty and not doing other things with our lives. You know, life's too short to worry about that all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. Life is too short to spend all of that energy feeling bad about how you look and obsessing over it, which I've been there in my life where it's like all I can think about and I can't accomplish anything for hours. And I I hate that anybody has to experience that because Everybody has so much potential and so much to offer and so much that they want to do with their lives. It's just not important, you know, to worry about if your head is stretched out enough. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's not going to change anything. Like even if you do achieve whatever you're set out to, the abs and the everything, 
there's nothing yeah. at the end of the, there's nothing at the end there you know yeah there's not a prize you're not like now I have a whole my life will always be happy and fulfilling it's yeah not how it works. it's like you just move into maintaining that and maintaining sucks like you know it's just it's boring <laughs> yeah. yeah it is it is it is it's very boring but I do think you know body image is a big part of all of this and I think it it's connected very deeply to this, you know, desire to continue to buy more stuff to feel better, to say like, I don't have the abs, so I'm going to buy the outfit and hope that I can fake it, yep. you know, and it leads to just like more and more consumption in an attempt to sort of keep up and feel better. Yeah, like it's an endless cycle. I always say that um, I teach um, – with a, an, or an NGO in Canada called Fashion Takes Action. And we go to classrooms um, from like grade three to like high school. And uh, we teach them about the impact of fast fashion. Um, and I always say that like the fashion problem is also uh, like a, like a self care problem. Like it's, it, we have to be able to own who we are so we can detach from the idea that we need the things to make us feel the way we want to feel. Because we can't just say, say to people all the time, stop buying fast fashion. If someone needs it to feel good about themselves, they can't stop doing that. They can't, even if, even if we tell them all day, it's not going to change anything. So we have to help mm -hmm. people feel good about who they are without the fashion and the accessories and all that crap so they can then say oh yeah that's true I don't need to buy all the time you know yeah yeah no 100% I think that is just as big of a part of pro of the problem as the industry itself you know it's we have a responsibility there too to work on those issues when you talk to kids about this what kind of advice do you give them Well, we have this new workshop where we, because we used, all we used to do was tell them about, you know, the impact on the environment, how much water is used, um, the, the pollution, like the, the chemicals that are in the clothes. And then we would tell them about the people who made the clothes and how much little, how little they make and their living conditions and all of that. And uh, I was reading somewhere that there's something about the brain that our brain is constructed to only fully care um, about like a hundred or so people. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And it, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And like, because of the internet and everything, we haven't evolved enough to like care about people we don't know that live far or that we've never seen before. And that would explain mm -hmm. why it's so hard for us to care about like poverty uh, in other countries and stuff like that. And I thought it was really fascinating because When we tell them, they're a little bit like, oh, my God, that's horrible. But then like a week later, they sort of forgot, you know? Um, yeah. So now we have this new workshop and I've, I've, I've been trying to push for a long time the idea that we really need to to explain to 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 young folks how consumption like the like fashion is trying the fashion industry is trying to get them to buy and to try to make them feel bad to so they can buy stuff and then you can look at it in a different way and be like oh my god I'm a pawn in this you know so mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so what we do is we have this um 
it's like a style guide or a style journal that they can build. And um, we encourage them to like take different uh, pictures, make a collage, or they can do it online as well and just have like a visual of uh, what their style is like, like things that are not trendy. Like what's my style? What colors do I like? What kind of fabrics do I like? Um, People who inspire me and we like invite them to be to dig and to find diverse sources that are not just all coming from the same place. Um, and then we, we teach them about different things in fashion. Like we teach them about cultural appropriation and um, just to kind of show you example, to kind of show them examples of, look, this is what companies are doing to other people and it hurts them and their culture and trying to get them to see like those companies don't want the best for you. They want the worst for you so you can give them money, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So we talk about cultural appropriation. We talk about like how, like the white gaze, how a lot of the, a lot of branding is um, around like, you know, whiteness because it sells more around thinness because it sells more. Um, We talk about like fat phobia and like how that plays out in the fashion industry. Um, And so we talk a lot about a different thing so they can get a scope of like, Oh, so when there's a new fashion trend, I think it's all fun and and exciting, but there's like some ugly stuff behind it. And I have to, to know that to distance myself from it and and make my own decisions even though I still need clothes and I still want to express myself through clothes but I can make decisions that feel good and I can buy from brands that I can trust yeah I mean I've been thinking about that a lot lately too like what's the best way to facilitate people changing their behavior and I do think it is all about making everyone realize that they're kind of getting tricked all the time Mm -hmm. that if you if you can only have empathy for 100 people, well, you definitely have empathy for yourself and you don't want to feel like you're being tricked or misled. You want to be smarter than that. And I think that's like a really positive and empowering way to change your behavior, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> to, to just know and to question things. It feels it feels like you're taking ownership of something that you didn't have control over before. Yeah. Because the thing is, when we say, and I've done that a lot, like, but when we say, hey, stop buying fast fashion, like I've done even with friends, uh, friends would come to me and be like, I just got these shorts for $5. And I would get so angry. I'm like, you're my friend. You should know. Fast fashion is bullshit. Why are you doing that? You don't need those shorts. And then they would like, you know, my friends would get angry because they would feel like I'm shaming them and, and it hurts them. And so because they're hurt, they can't think, um, they can't just think objectively like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Um, you right. Know? So then right. Uh, it's funny. I actually um, ended up taking those shorts because my friend was like, I don't like them. And I was like, now I have to salvage them for you. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's like if if instead we can have real conversations with people about what the industry is doing to them and how it hurts them because it's playing with their emotions and it's playing with their sense of, of um, self-confidence and self-respect to get them to buy. Then it's like, then it becomes a radical act to say, I'm not buying your bullshit because I know you're playing with my mind and I'm not going to let that happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like it because it's a lot more, you just feel more powerful mm-hmm. when you know that. And I think 
I, I've been sort of trying to take that tactic a lot more when I talk to people, like, you know, on social media, because I don't see people in real life. But, <laughs> you know, that's definitely, that's definitely where I've been got, going and like, you know, giving, pe- educating people, giving them the tools, it allows them to feel like they're in charge of it instead of, you know, when you think about, you know, global warming, climate change, it feels so overwhelming because you're like, how can I, one person, make a change? And so then it's really easy to just be like, I'm not going to think about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, telling people how they can change it on a personal level, you know, and how they can, I don't know, like there's something that feels satisfying when you're like, I see through it all now and I see what what my power is here to change it. I don't know. I'm like kind of meandering here, but yeah, it's definitely yeah, totally it's definitely something. Totally. And then instead of being something like, I don't know if I'm having an impact, maybe I'm doing all of this for nothing, no one cares. Then it becomes like, I'm not doing this for results. I'm doing this because I'm honoring my values and I'm being in integrity with who I am. And I'm mm-hmm. refusing to be part of this scheme that is trying to make me feel bad. And that's empowering. Yeah. And then you can do that without having to worry about, am I going to actually produce results or am I going to have an impact? It's more like, I know that I live my life in a way that is aligned with who I want to be. And that is like, it, that makes you feel good. That makes you want to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you were saying, this starts with us when we're really young. It's, it's like the only life that we know is sort of being tricked into focusing on these things that aren't important. And I was even like when you and I were preparing for this episode, I was talking about how there's this very strange phenomenon of children watching YouTube videos of other children opening toys. And I feel like it's the child version of seeing a really skinny uh, influencer have a new outfit every day. It's really – I find it really, really concerning because the other thing about these videos is most of them are these are these phenomenon of toys that there's a lot of surprises inside them. So you might get like a big plastic ball and then you open it and there are all these other little plastic balls inside with other surprises inside them. And there's this – I mean like we're talking millions and millions of views of children watching other children open these. And – I assume it must have the same impact that it would have on me as a child watching the the cartoons on the weekends where it was all toy commercials. And my brother would like get up and be like, I want this for Christmas. Now I want this. Hey, can I get this? Like it gets right into your head. You just wanted like cereal and toys constantly. (laughs) Right? But, you know, very few people are sitting down and watching like network television anymore. And so this is a new way to get kids to want things. Yeah. And it's really, it's really concerning to me. Yeah. And that idea is almost the same as like um, shopping and how, when we, when we shop for clothes or anything, we get very excited. Like the excitement of getting the new thing is, is, Mm -hmm. is more of why we buy than the actual ownership of the item. Like we, our excitement about the new item fades away so quickly and then we need another one. And so children mm-hmm. are like learning it right away by unwrapping toys or watching someone unwrap toys. I guess the good yeah. thing about it is they don't have to own the toys if there is one good thing. 
that's what I was thinking. I was like, this is more sustainable, I guess. Except like my niece is really into watching these. And then if you go anywhere with her, her desire for toys is so high. Mm. It's like all she can think about. Like you get to the store in the car and you're having the conversation on the way there. And then it's sort of like the whole way through the store, like a conversation, like a negotiation, I guess, of like if she could get a toy, how many could she get? It's really crazy. And I know it's like normal because I've talked to other people and they're like, yeah, it's like it creates this – it still feeds this obsession to have things. And I'm like, I understand it because I can read a magazine and someone's talking about a lotion or a belt or a pair of shoes and suddenly I'm thinking about that for days, you know? I can see that on Instagram and think like, should I get my teeth straightened, you know? Should I be getting these weird like – colonics or something like it all gets into my head you know like am i uh, am i missing out on an important part of life if i don't do and have these things mm-hmm. yeah and i think another part of that that is like really related to these videos of kids looking at other kids open toys is youtube haul videos <laughs> oh my god which is also i i mean i haven't even i can't even watch one it's like too upsetting for me you know, <laughs> I also I don't know why people do this because I remember even when I was younger and I could buy a few items uh, at a time, it would still be the worst shopping trip because I would have too many good things, new things at once, and so I wouldn't know like which one to wear or I would forget a few, mm-hmm. and then I would be like, actually, I only wanted that one because I'm excited about this one new thing. But you're kind of like almost confused in your excitement because there's too many things, and it makes it less yeah. special. So I don't understand why people go and buy like tons of things and I I just don't understand them. And even there's the sustainable fashion hauls, which are driving me crazy because you're not. Or the thrift hauls, the thrift hauls too. It's like, oh my God, you're not getting it. (laughs) Yeah. I think you, I think that's a really good point there that like when you go out and you haul a bunch of this stuff, it doesn't feel as exciting as you think it would be because there's too much. Like I've definitely I it makes me think of being a child on Christmas Day after you opened all of your presents you kind of didn't know what wouldn't know where to begin. Yeah. It was overwhelming, you know? Yeah. Like you kind of just wanted to go upstairs and play with your old toys because you couldn't figure out which toys you wanted to play with first. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah, or just get that one thing that you like and the other stuff just gets piled up. Yeah. 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 I I I just think Maybe you can have one day where you actually find uh, several things that you really love and are excited about and you do end up wearing them and loving them all the time. But that is such a rare experience because what I find is that shopping breeds more shopping. And so maybe you got that one thing that you really love and then suddenly your brain's like, yeah, let's buy even more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This is great, you know? Oh, the top is great, but the pants I have with it don't really work. So now I have to get pants to go with that top. (laughs) And then what about shoes, you know? And then you're like, oh, those shoes, they don't actually – you need special socks. or I mean, it's just like a whole whole thing. You know, I've definitely – done that where it's been like a, a group of us and we're like, we're going to go shopping all day today. I mean, I haven't done this in so long, but I remember times like that and it was almost like, we can't stop shopping. Yes. We have to buy and buy and buy. Even as a, a traveling like activity, let's do shopping. I used to love shopping and now I can't even 
like think of it like it's exhausting to me to think about going to a store and looking at things I'm almost like just show them to me and then I'll decide like I don't want to I don't want to have to like look through everything that's way too much work I'm like I have to search to buy like show me five things that can be nice and I'll decide if one of them work and that's it you know I did um yeah uh, after the shirt thing after the shirt project I decided okay I have to do something bigger so I decided I'm not gonna buy anything for a year no clothing and um the only thing I was allowed to do was like if something's ripped and I really need something and I can't find it secondhand um Mm -hmm. or swap and I started organizing clothing swaps so I would do a clothing swap every month and then for a year I didn't buy anything and um I t- it totally got me disconnected with the idea of fashion in a way. Like I would, like when we had the swaps, I was like, oh, if there's pieces left at the end, I might grab a couple things, but I was not very interested. It was more like, I need a pair of pants because there's a hole in mine and I need to just find that. But otherwise I was never thinking like, oh, I need to go buy this and that. And I, I wasn't, I don't know how I thought it was going to be much harder than it ended up being. But even from then, I think I only bought like five things. And that was I did that in 2008. So from 2008 till now, I only bought like five items. <laughs> That's amazing. But I, and I bet you they're all like really important to you. Yeah. Like those five the items. first item I bought after was a cotton sweater. It's a Canadian company and it's all uh, Egyptian cotton. Um, it's organic and they're like an ethical brand. And so I got this sweater. I think it was like $90 or something. And I was like, okay, I have to really think about this and like make sure this is it. This is the right color. This is everything. And still to this day, Two years later, it's my favorite sweater. And when I wear it, I'm always like, okay, this is my nice sweater. And it still feels new, even though it's it's definitely not. Um, so it's interesting <laughs> how like we can change our perspective. Like now I feel like it's exhausting to go shopping. And I used to love it so much. And that's interesting to me because uh, we're being sold this idea of quote retail therapy mm-hmm. that and and I think it started as sort of a thing people would kind of joke about like oh I'm feeling bad I'm gonna go do some retail therapy by buying myself something but this year especially because everything is so dark I've actually literally received emails from retailers and brands that use the term retail therapy and suggest it <laughs> as something you should do to feel better is, oh, everything's falling apart. Just buy something. It'll, it'll fix it. And, you know, I, I say this a lot. I'm going to say it again. Retail therapy is not therapy. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it, we just, we yeah. just live in a world where we don't want to be with our emotions. Like I'm sad right now, but I don't want to be sad. So I'm going to go buy something uh-huh. to avoid being sad. But what about, hey, it's okay if you're sad. Just be sad for now and then it will go away. Like just allow yourself to be sad. Like we are human beings. We can't always be Mm -hmm. uh, up and running and happy. We're not like, this is, it makes me feel like we are working machines now and we've been told that, you know, we have to be efficient and we have to do stuff and we have to produce. So when we're sad, you know, we're not in, in producing mode. So we have to go do something to solve it. And it's like, no, just be with your sadness for a minute. Just cry it out and and then you'll be fine. Then you bounce back naturally without the things or the food or the, you know. I mean, that right there 
can be the biggest game changer. And I think you're onto something there that we have been conditioned that we need to be as productive as possible at all times and as pleasant as possible to everyone around us at all times. And I think that all stems from this like very capitalist idea that we are all workers. Mm -hmm. That is who we are. That is our primary identity. And if – I mean, I've had jobs where they're like, leave your feelings at home. And it's like, well (laughs) – That's the thing is they're like in my brain, which I'm bringing with me to work, right? (laughs) You know, like that idea that like you're supposed to turn it all off at work is very insidiously connected to the idea that if you're feeling bad, you need to do something about it right away. So, you know, I've seen articles like this all year long. Like, are you depressed? Are you frightened? Are you anxious? Well, why don't you try – working out Mm -hmm. or change your diet or buy something. I mean, it's all, it's all like you, you need to do everything you can to fix it instead of just being like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to cry and you will feel better. I think anybody who's listening, who has not let themselves cry about something for a long time and has held it in realizes that ultimately it made them feel worse. And then when you just get it out, it's like you feel it's like after you throw up, you feel euphoric. <laughs> You're like, I, I am now moving on to the next thing, you know, yeah. naturally. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, any um, if you read any creativity books, um, they will always say that the cycle – there's a cycle of creativity. Like you can, you get excited, you get motivated, um, you create something, you get it done. And then you feel a little bit like you can't do anything. Like you need to go and, and, and rest. And then in the rest, sometimes there's no motivation. There's no, there's no action. And then, and then you, you come back again. And so it's like, it's the same for everything. Like you feel sad, you process your emotions and then you, and you sit in it for a bit and then you find, you find, you figure out why, and then you come back out of it and then, and then it continues. But if we don't do that, then it's just like, Oh, I'm blocked here. I'm sad. I'm going to get a thing. Oh, I'm blocked here. I'm sad. I'm going to eat something. Oh. And, and then, mm-hmm. and then that's where we, we unfortunately live in a world where, where uh, brands are like, Oh yeah, just let's figure out where people can be sad or can be upset. And then let's see how we can figure them, figure solutions to sell them to solve that sadness or that frustration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, the amount of emails that I've received in the past few months from retailers trying to sell me shopping as a form of self-care, it's it's disturbing because you know, we talk about people, you know, developing addictions to food, to gambling, to alcohol and drugs. And these are all coping mechanisms that we would say need to be repaired, you know, that you need to work on. We don't talk about how shopping as an addiction is, as a coping mechanism that turns into an addiction, is so socially acceptable. Yeah. And it's so damaging, you know, in in a multitude of ways. Um, You put some information in here about the harmful consequences of shopping addiction. Um, You said that 58% of compulsive shoppers have large debts. And I mean, debt itself, especially if it's large like that, has such a sense of shame attached to it that I feel like it kind of feeds the cycle even faster Mm -hmm. because you're coping with that shame. I had a coworker years ago who had to declare bankruptcy 
because her shopping addiction and her the debt related to it were just so out of control. Wow. Um, one of my friends, uh, it works kind of helping older people unhoard their houses. And uh, she recently worked with someone who had just rooms filled top to bottom with things from QVC, just buying home shopping stuff all the time and never even like doing anything with wow. it. I know it's really, really sad. Uh, and people feel guilty about it. You, it says here in our, our doc that 45% of these compulsive shoppers experience guilt about their shopping. And once again, then you are buying some more because you feel bad. Or someone in your family is critical of it or calls it out, even maybe just like casually kind of joking, and then you feel bad, but then you buy more stuff anyway. And then this just leads to financial problems, legal problems, and it kind of – as we've been talking, I've been getting angry thinking about (laughs) how basically everybody's getting tricked into feeling bad about themselves and shopping and shopping and shopping. And what they're really doing is not only not having the intellectual – space and time and energy to achieve their full potential, they're also kind of destroying their quality of life because they're spending all this money on stuff that doesn't make them happy when they could be traveling or, you know, buying a house or I don't know, doing other things that are going to make them feel happier in a real way and feel feel safe and secure. It's, it's like infuriating. Yeah. And then it's the idea of being a pawn. It's like the industry is like, oh, Yes, you know, we got this person. She buys everything we suggest. Uh, you know, she she gets into every aver- every marketing ad that we put up. It works out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's just like, oh my god, <laughs> it's so frustrating to see that it hurts people's lives and and then we just let it slide. You know, there's no there's no solutions. We're not talking about solutions. We're not uh, we're not. I, I bet you that if we were talking about the impact of the fashion industry on people's lives, it would make consumers change faster to a more sustainable fashion to buying less because they would feel like someone cares about me, someone's listening to me and someone's helping me be um, like living a better life and be happier instead of someone's telling me I should buy these things, but I can't because I don't even know how to kind of live with myself without that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, listen, people this year are poorer than they've been in a really long time. So many people have lost their jobs, their way of life. And one thing I've noticed is that more and more sites, like more and more shopping sites this year are now offering that buy now, pay later service you know, where like you can buy something and pay for it in four easy payments. Oh, oh, yeah. That's that's not an accident, okay, that we're seeing more and more of that and that places like Shopify are rolling that out to even smaller retailers, that retailers are looking to build their own version of that. I mean, I get ads for it constantly. My friends who run their own businesses are – like they have these services reaching out to them constantly. Like, do you want to sign up for this? Blah, 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 blah. Because they know they're going to send you that email saying that you should just do some retail therapy. You're going to see it. You're going to feel bad because you don't have the money. But then you're going to see that you could do this buy now, pay later thing and you're going to do it. It's very predatory. Oh, wow. You know what my favorite thing is these days actually is I decided last week that I was going to unsubscribe to every single email 
that I receive because um, you know how you like sign up one day and you forget and when you get it, you just delete it quickly. I I really can't stand when I have emails in my uh, mailbox. They have to be checked or read or something. So I always like just delete, 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 delete. But then I decided last week, okay, now I'm done with this. I need to like disconnect. I need to have way less emails. So I'm unsubscribing to every single thing and I'm discovering so many weird um email newsletter that I'm signed up for that I don't even know why and I feel like every time I do one I'm like see you later like I'm so excited to be like you know screw you and your marketing dude I have been getting emails from places I swear I've never heard of before like it's so bad like it's I'm like what what is this brand and then I get to go to the website to see who they are and I'm like I've never bought anything from them I've never looked at the site I don't even think I follow them on Instagram like how how is this happening I think I think if that is such a great idea to unsubscribe like if you were looking for a quick pick-me-up Go in and unsubscribe to all those emails because it is gratifying. It feels so good. And some of them have like these sad messages like, I'm so sad you're leaving. Like some of them have videos and I'm like, screw you. I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that is something interesting though is like email marketing. I feel like there was a time where that was like the gold standard for getting you to buy things was to send you an email. (laughs) And I've noticed in my years in the industry that every year we have found that less people were opening the emails that we sent them than the, d- the year before. Yeah. Like we – I mean it's like a phenomenon now to have one email account just for all of that stuff, you know, because it cl- it clogs up your ability to see the important emails. And I, th- I think that, that that's so interesting because it does seem like there are people who still – insist on emailing me multiple times a day to try to sell me things. Like Uniqlo sometimes will email me like four or five times a day. Oh my God, you got to unsubscribe for Uniqlo just as like principle. I know. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I I will say that my one email account is like oversubscribed to all the retailers because, you know, when you're a buyer, you have to see what everybody else is doing yeah. all the time. Um, and so I've been gradually, it's quite a process to unsubscribe to all it's these people. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It is. They don't make it easy. You can't just click unsubscribe because like you said, it's a whole song and dance. Yeah. Some of them are so hard. I think uh, National Geographic for me was the hardest. It's not that I didn't like it, but it just takes two every day or twice a day. It's like, I don't want to see your stuff twice a day. You know, if I want to see it, I can go to the (laughs) site or I can read one of your books. Like I just don't. And so they make it so hard. Like you have to sign in and then find a way. Like I was so frustrated with it. Some of them I had to email the people directly and be like, will you unsubscribe me or what? Like, I need you to <laughs> I need to unsubscribe me ASAP, you know, like calling yeah. customers. <laughs> totally, totally. It's so true. It's so true. So well, that that is a good a good segue into the next thing, which is how do we move forward and sort of liberate ourselves from this trap? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, definitely that's one thing, like choosing to like purposely saying, no, I don't want to receive because sometimes we can say, oh, I'm, I'm annoyed. I'm, I'm getting these emails or I'm annoyed at the Instagram account, but we still follow it because there's still a part of us that likes to kind of hurt ourselves with it sometimes, you know, like I, I know it hurts me to look at this influencer um, who's perfect, but 
I'm going to do it anyways for some reason. Like on days where yeah. we feel shitty, it's like, I'm going to go see what this person's doing and 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 I know it's going to hurt me, but I'll do it anyways. So like unsubscribing, unfollowing, or if you if it's like friends, even some of your friends, if it, it doesn't feel good, you can just mute them and they won't. Yes. Know. You know, yes. And and then and then you're you're kind of free from that. Um and yeah, it's really about like getting a a sense of like, okay, how am I being a pawn from this industry? Where am I where am I being trapped? And and getting more information to understand where you're being trapped, and then from there saying like choosing no choosing to say no to these things and just saying okay what are my values what are important to me and what do I want to honor here you know and so then it makes it much easier to take action than just from a place of like everyone's telling me I need to do this because it's not okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop buying from this brand because other people have said it's like okay but what is this brand doing that hurts you like how's this brand hurting you just just entertain that idea and mm-hmm, kind of mm-hmm. investigate a little bit, you know, does this, um, is this brand wanting, um, good things for me? Are they wanting the best for me? Or are they trying to, um, manipulate me and feeling a certain way? So I buy their things and do I want to be manipulated? That's kind of a question everybody should be asking ourselves. It's like, <laughs> do I want to be manipulated by this brand right now? And so that yeah. could be enough to, to kind of take some action, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And you said something really important uh, when we were preparing, which was like guilt is not the way forward. You know, shaming yourself or others is not how we change this, which like your friend with the shorts, for example. Yeah. <laughs> Take your own advice, maybe. Yeah. I mean, definitely. It, it just doesn't work. So even though it feels like sometimes we, and I'm sure it happens to you too, it's like sometimes we feel passionate about telling other people like, you know, do not buy these things or, you know, this is not right. And then it just ends up that on the other side, people just respond with, oh, oh, I don't want to be judged right now. And they they close in because they feel like, oh, you're judging me. And so I'm not going to listen to you because it's like a a defense mechanism. It's like I have Mm -hmm. to now close in and I'm not listening. And whatever you say, I'm not going to be open to it because you're judging me. And so if we can take the judgment out of the picture, then we can better have better conversations with people and we can see where they're coming from, you know, because also not everyone can afford sustainable clothing. Like it's expensive. So mm-hmm. even just mm-hmm. like, for example, underwear, when I was doing my year of not buying anything, it was so expensive. Sustainable underwear is so expensive. And I was like, so I can't spend expensive. $200 on underwear right now. I'll buy one, but I need like eight. Yeah. So, yeah. No, trust me. I've been, this has been a problem for me this year too, where I, I am like, okay, there are certain things in my life that I unfortunately can't buy the fancy sustainable version of. So I'm going to buy just what I need and I'm going to make it last for a really long time you know, care for it really well. I think it's not about perfection. Yes. You know, when people talk about uh, like the anti-vegan kind of people talk about how they feel like vegans are really like snobby and judgmental and demand perfection. I like, I think I, I've been sort of thinking about that, that sort of like a blowback against veganism, this idea that it's like all about perfection and sort of adapting that into my own approach to 
you know, reducing my consumption and buying better by saying like, it's not always going to be exactly how I dreamed it would be. That sometimes I'm going to need underwear and I'm going to have to buy them at Target. You know, that's okay. How can I make that situation better for myself? Yeah. You know, so it's about trying your hardest to do better. And I think the one thing that we can all do that has a huge impact on the world that has nothing to do with organic cotton or anything like that is just to stop falling into the cycle of buying tons of stuff all the time. Yeah. That's where it begins is like breaking the habit. Yeah. Um, there was a, a book I read a few years back about money and our relationship with money. And there was a chapter about owning and ownership. And it was talking about we need to develop our ab ability to appreciate things without owning them because the joy of things is in the appreciation. It's not in the owning. Mm -hmm. So like you could literally see a beautiful object and stay there or a beautiful item of clothing and try it on for like a couple minutes and just kind of be with it and just appreciate it and then letting it go. And if we can practice letting go of the ownership and staying with the appreciation, we would still get that feeling of buying things, but we wouldn't have to own these things. We wouldn't have to buy them. That's so interesting. I mean, that, you know, I remember reading how for the last few years, well, it's picked back up, but basically art museums were really struggling like 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, to get people to come in and just look at art, right? And I think part of that was it's it can be challenging to reset your brain to just go look at something and not take it home, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that they were able to get more people to come to museums is by starting to allow them to take photos while they were there. Which I mean, I have a lot I have a lot of issues with that mostly because I always see people behaving really badly at oh art museums my now. God. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. It's terrible. Um and so it kind of created this whole other realm of problems, but I think that the taking photos thing is about some sort of level of ownership that It couldn't have happened if you didn't have this like souvenir of it, which is what the photos are. Yep. And by allowing people to start taking photos at museums, suddenly like attendance was like, you know, way higher and, and museums were doing a lot better. And I think that's so fascinating. And it really, to me, is like a metaphor for consumerism, sort of, that like we have lost that ability to just appreciate something without owning it. Yep. And it's also, it, On top of that, it's we can't just do stuff anymore to make ourselves happy. We have to show other people that we're doing yes. that, which is really yes. weird. It's so weird. It's so weird. Yeah, I uh, I get really upset at art museums all the time. <laughs> But it's annoying when you're there to look at art and people are doing like legit big photo shoots, full camera and stuff in front of I it. know. And like pose, I know. a sexy pose in front of art. It's like, come on. Can you just respect the art for a minute? I mean, yeah, I get it. everyone's allowed to do whatever they want in a way and, and it's fine. But it's also, it just feels like something there is not, there's something that doesn't, um, doesn't seem, not, I don't want to say right, but it's something that seems broken. And the idea that we can't just enjoy ourselves. We have to know that other people are enjoying ourselves, enjoying ourselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's true. It's something I think about all the time how social media has 
has changed our relationship with every experience in our lives. And it's like when you go to a restaurant and you look around and everybody's taking photos of their food oh. before they eat it. It's like you don't even know if it's a good meal yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like people sharing – like people going together for dinner and then uh, taking pictures of each other eating – But then mm -hmm. while they're done, they're not actually enjoying themselves. They're still on their phone trying to edit their pictures instead <sighs> of actually having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, we when we when my husband and I travel, it's like kind of a challenge for us to just be like, okay, we can take photos of things that are really cool, but we don't need to sit down and edit and post right now. Like let's go through a whole day of like having experiences. And then if there's something you need to share that night, that's the time for it. And I feel like it puts you in a place where you can actually experience things as if it was the pre-phone era, you know? Yeah. I feel it like, like it. I always have the opposite problem where I forget to take pictures, you know, like even, <laughs> even with the magazine, sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I should be posting something or whatever. But it's like, <laughs> you're supposed to post that you do stuff or you're supposed to post that you're working or that something's happening. But it's like, I get so into doing the thing that I forget or I'll go on the trip and I have like five pictures and I'm like oh yeah I forgot uh, because I don't want to look totally me. I like I just don't want to look at a scenery somewhere through my phone while trying to take a picture of it I just want to look at it yeah I'll remember yeah. I don't need the picture I'll remember but if I just exactly. have the picture, I'll be like oh I don't want that like no one wants I, to look at that <laughs> no I rarely take pictures of scenery because you know it's never it's never the same right like Being there in that moment and looking around and all of the other like sensory elements that come with it, that never compares to a photo. So when I'm traveling, I only take photos of like garbage and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's Wait. like so like, – I feel like if you look at our my husband and I's feeds when we're traveling, you like really would have no idea what we've been doing except that it was weird. <laughs> It's on my list to have like an exhibition of like trash around the world and just have pictures of trash from different countries. I have a few already, but just uh, a few and just, it, I like it because you don't know where it's from, like except for little details in the background. Mm -hmm, but it's like mm -hmm. trash is pretty universal wherever you go. It's true. It's true. I, I get really fixated on it, especially like if you're in a place like Japan where you don't see a lot of trash. Yeah, when you do, it's so there's fun. a story there. Like, we've seen some weird trash. <laughs> yeah. it's. I, I was in Japan in 2018, and I was like, I'm so excited. I'm going to take a bunch of pictures of, like, trash there and, and all. And then I get there, and there's no trash anywhere. And then I was oh. asking people, and they were saying, no, no, you're supposed to bring your trash home with you. They took mm -hmm. out the garbage bins, and you take your trash home with you. And I was like, but I... But I, I have one picture of really good garbage that I that I really like. That was my one picture of trash from Japan. <laughs> <laughs> we were – the only time we've seen trash out in public was in Osaka. And we immediately were like, are we in a bad neighborhood? Because we've never seen trash on the ground. And it was an empty bottle of peppermint schnapps <laughs> <laughs> and a yogurt container. <laughs> It's just like, what happened here? <laughs> it was so weird. <laughs> I mean, if I saw that here, I'd be like, oh, whatever. Yeah, just another day. 
<laughs> it felt very special. It felt like there was a really good story there about <laughs> someone's really weird day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any parting words or advice for the listeners or something you want them to know? Um, I would say um, just look into what you're doing and understand why you're doing it. And that will lead you to places that you don't know about. And it can either, like it can both lead you to discovering things that you don't want to support. And mm-hmm. it can also lead you to places you never thought you would you you would be in. And you can discover yourself there and you can discover passions there. So I always say just be curious on like just be curious and just investigate where you put your money, where you put your time, where you put your attention. uh, And then Mm -hmm. as you do, you get closer to you, to yourself. I think. I love that. I love that. I like this idea of realizing that not shopping a ton and like kind of just not buying in general is like this incredibly radical political act. Yeah. It's badass. You know, it's a badass. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. This was such a great conversation. I feel fired up now. I feel like I have me to run around the block or something. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel really like my the wheels in my brain are turning right now. I have like so many ideas and so many things to think about. <laughs> All right. Wasn't that an awesome final interview for 2020? You can learn more about Ungarbage Magazine on Instagram at ungarbagemag or at ungarbagemag.com. And MP told me to tell you that you can get $5 off your order of the magazine, and she has prints as well. They're awesome, with code EMPOWERED. I'll put that in the show notes. Don't worry. She thought that was a great tie-in to this episode, and I definitely agree. So before we wrap things up for this episode, let's just review some of the tips from MP because I think that these are just so good for us all to think about as we start this new year. First one is unsubscribe. And you know, I've been working on this since our conversation and it feels so good, meaning I'm unsubscribing from all of those retailer emails that I get. I mean, I get so many. And like I mentioned in our conversation, I get emails from brands I swear I've never bought anything from. I even sometimes get emails from that website that just sells air plants. Like it's crazy how many emails I get. And you know what else? I don't even want to be tempted by all this bad stuff that I don't need, you know? And it's just nice to open my email and only see things that I actually want to read. Next, control your feed. As I mentioned in our convo, I've been really aggressively editing my feed this year and it's made me feel so much better. It's like the little things in life, I swear. It just clears out the nonsense that I don't need to see, the stuff that makes me feel bad about myself. And then I actually get to see like, you know, my friends and loved ones or people who are working on cool things that I want to see. I also just don't need to see stuff all day that pisses me off because that affects my mental health too. You know, like people going to Halloween parties during a pandemic or traveling to Florida, a known hot zone for their birthday 
during a pandemic. Like this kind of stuff just made me angry all day long. So I cut those people out and it's just, it's been so much better for my mental health. You know, there's nothing beneficial about being kind of like permanently angry because I need to save that energy for all this clothes horse work. And it has been so liberating. Honestly, take an hour, lay on your couch, your favorite piece of furniture, and just start unfollowing. It feels so good. Lastly, own who you are. You don't need to dress for anyone but yourself. You don't need to wear certain brands or wear something new in every Instagram post. What you like is just fine. You don't need to diet or do bikini workouts or contour your face. You can also do all of those things if it's your jam, but you can also not do any of that. You know, one great thing about being both broke and quarantined is that I'm not going to get my nails done every week, which is something I felt like I had to do because of my job and because there's that pressure to be like mega ultra groomed at all times. And you know what? I don't miss it because like, while a pedicure does feel good and I have the gnarliest feet, like for my hands, it just, it just seems so silly and like not who I am. So it's been kind of cool to figure out what matters to me in 2020 and what I was just doing to, I don't know, fit in. I think that's the most important takeaway from this episode. Just do what is right for you. MP's idea that all of this dieting and grooming and body shaming and shopping propaganda, all of it is like an effective distraction from, you know, women running the world, from having that brain space to like succeed. I really felt that. Like that's, I've been thinking about that. We recorded this episode, I would say almost a month ago, and it's been on my mind this entire time. It made me feel even more fired up for a new year of like shifting focus from what I think I'm supposed to be to who I actually am and using that saved energy to continue to build our community and to be a part of this movement toward a better and more equitable world. I mean, what a good way to end this weird ass year and start a new one, right? I can't wait to hear what all of you think about this episode. Thanks for listening to this our final episode of 2020. I'm going to give you a heads up now that there will be no Sunday episode this week. I guess technically Sunday is next week, but there won't be an episode on Sunday. And that's because I need just some time, just a tiny bit to chill out, use my new Hello Kitty sewing machine and arrange some artificial fruit. I have so much artificial fruit I've been wanting to play with. Um, if you listen to the department, you know, I'm like obsessed with it. (laughs) I'll also be putting together the Patreon exclusive mini sewed about Cabbage Patch Kids. And I'll be working out some like technical design stuff for the new Close Horse blog with Dustin. So it's not like I'm going to be laying in bed while someone feeds me grapes. I guess it would either be Brenda or Dustin. I'm going to be working, but I'm just going to be chilling out and maybe not having to hear the sound of my own voice so much. But I'll be back in just seven days with a very exciting episode featuring a very exciting guest. I can't wait. Actually, all the episodes for January are going to be what they call off the chain. (laughs) And we'll finally dig into Girlfriend Collective, which you're all always asking me about. And I've been like, hold on, it's coming. This break could also be a good chance for you to check out my other podcast, The Department. It's the fun podcast. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends of all types and how they impact our lives. 
This week's episode is all about the hair trends of the 80s and 90s and all the weird gadgets and products that we used to get those looks. We unsuccessfully used to get those looks is probably a better description. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Don't forget, if you leave a review this month, I'll send you an anti-brunch society pin and membership card. And also, as an important reminder, both in 2020 and in 2021, breakfast for dinner is still the best meal of all. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. You know I love that. Please keep it up. It brings me joy every single day. If you ever want me to share a source for statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, please reach out. I have the world's biggest bookmark folder growing with every day. I'm glad it's not a real actual folder of real actual articles because it would just be, I'd be drowning in paper right now. And while I'm not a journalist, I'm very committed to providing you with accurate true facts and information. So if you ever have any questions, please reach out. I have all the articles. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. I've also mentioned, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it on an episode, maybe I just mentioned it on Instagram, but I'm working for, on an episode for mid to late January, so there's still plenty of time, which I'm tentatively calling the Etsy-sode, and I'm really looking for people to send me stories of your experiences, both good and bad with Etsy, like why do you sell on Etsy or why don't you sell on Etsy? Um, you can email those to me, you can DM me on Instagram, or you could call the hotline. And if it turns out you have a lot to say, we could probably just sit down and record a short phone call. Uh, so how can you reach me? Well, you can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. It just occurred to me that it would be amazing if we had like a jingle song for that, but I'm definitely not going to sing publicly. <laughs> There's also the old-fashioned way to reach out, which is email. It's so old-timey. Clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. I would also just like to say, if you want to meet some other Close Horse listeners, which of course you do, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll share that link in the show notes. Thanks to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. See you next year. I've been waiting to say that for so long.